Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast looking at the Halloween franchise from beginning to end. Last week, myself and Andrew took a week off to talk about Jerry Zucker's ghost with the wonderful Jan Gannon, the fantastic Jason Coyle. But don't worry, that was technically still in the wheelhouse. It was a suitably ghoulish excursion. And luckily enough, we're back this week talking about the Halloween franchise. We are talking about Rob Zombie's 2007 reboot, Halloween. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me as always, my co-host, Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? Okay. <laughs> Um, I'm, 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 I'm all right. Like the, the, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, how, how, how are you, Dan? We, we should let listeners know in keeping with the continuity of the Halloween franchise, myself and Joey decided to reboot Andrew. So if it seems like Andrew doesn't remember any of the conversations that we have had talking about the previous eight Halloween movies, it's because it's a bit that we are committing to wholeheartedly. <laughs> But that's okay, because somebody who will remember the other Halloween movies is our co-host for this season, the fantastic Joey Kyo. How are you, Joey? Woo, it's Halloween! (laughs) (laughs) And returning due to popular demand, having basically laid down her cards, having said, this is what I want to talk about in this Halloween season, the wonderful Dr. (laughs) Bernice Murphy, who is shaking her head enthusiastically. She is so excited to be here. How are you, Bernice? I just rode up and ready to go. I mean, as you know, you know, I'm always saying I'd love to talk more about Rob Zombie's Halloween and my thoughts about it and, you know, how much I enjoyed it. You, you, you literally will this into happening. You, you don't get like Andrew can blame me for this. Andrew can blame me for the fact that we're doing this. But you guys are like, let's do. This is what we want to do next year. Um, but we do have. Look, I feel like this is the episode that Joey was put on the podcast to cover. <laughs> you are your Twitter handle is Joey LDG, which is Living Dead Girl, which is obviously a Rob Zombie reference. Is it safe to say you are a fan of the man himself, the artist, the musician, the filmmaker? I am. I'm the biggest Rob Zombie defender and I'll tell you why. I think he gets a really, really bad rap when someone like Eli Roth, who is this just like virulent misogynist and who played a version of himself in The Idol and did that badly too, he's heralded as this like genius. And I think, look, Rob Zombie, love him or hate him, he has a vision and he will stick to that vision. Nobody is doing what Rob Zombie is doing. And I just, he doesn't get enough credit. And yeah, no, he's he's no John Carpenter, don't get me wrong. But I just, I think there's there's much more to him than people give him credit for. And I wonder if it's because he has the music career too. And he's like quite flashy in that, that like, I don't know, people aren't willing to give him a chance. But, and he's always casting all these horror icons too. Like, you know, Malcolm McDowell and Sid Haig. Oh my God, Bill Mosley, like. Richard Price, yeah. And it, he like, um. Ken Faree pops up in this movie we're talking about today, which is amazing. And he's in uh, The Devil's Rejects as well. And he's, yeah, I think like someone like Bill Mosley, who is obviously very well known to horror fans as Chop Top from Texas Chainsaw, but he kind of gave him some of the meatiest roles of his career. And yeah, I just, I don't know. I, I'm i not going to say he's a genius or anything like that. I think he's definitely an acquired taste. And I think when it comes to his Halloween movies, what I would argue is that it's an example of somebody who's torn between his vision and the studio's vision and they didn't quite mesh. Like a lot of horror fans will argue that Rob Zombie should have been given Texas Chainsaw Massacre to redo because his vibe is much scuzzier and much nastier. He loves to Mm. do stuff down south even though he's from Massachusetts. (laughs) And he does his kind of like Southern accent on stage. But yeah, I just, I don't know. I think there's a lot more to him than people give him credit for. And yeah, I do. I think he's a fascinating filmmaker especially in modern horror. 
And Bernice, we, this is a, a podcast discussing the Halloween franchise in particular, and obviously we're going to talk about the remake uh, over the next hour and a half or however long it is. But as somebody who is an expert in horror cinema, do you have a read on Rob Zombie? How would you place him in terms of 21st century American horror filmmaking? Um, I have to admit, and you know, I will be saying a lot of very negative things about this film, just to set this up there. Um, but, <laughs> set this up, <laughs> Yeah, um, I think you can't doubt that Zombie is incredibly sincere in his love for the genre. Um, I did while watching this film. I repeatedly went, "Oh my God, that's so and so from such and such." Uh, you know, there's D. Wallace Stone, <laughs> there's Ken Faria, people I was happy to see, and I was thinking, "Good for them!" And isn't it great that you know they're getting an opportunity in you know what was a, a relatively big kind of studio release in 2007? It's great to see, and he clearly has a lot of respect for those actors and. Gives them gives them opportunities, etc. So, and uh, you know, I, I I know a lot of metal people and metal adjacent people. Uh, whoever want what whatever musical genre one would associate zombie with, you can tell that I'm terrible in music, can't you? Just that very statement. Uh, who who really love him as an artist, <laughs> and that's fair enough. I I I don't think he's a particularly, for my reckoning, I don't think he's a, a hugely significant filmmaker. I think, mm. I think he's got some interesting sequences in certain films, like there's a sequence to um. I see the Devil's Rejects. Uh, there's a montage to Freebird, which I will admit to absolutely adoring because Freebird's a great song. Yeah. Uh, but Freebird's doing a lot of the heavy yeah, lifting there. I will admit. Um, I, I think <laughs> that I think that he's homage rather than originality. Um, I think mm. he's a guy who's got a very particular kind of play set that he that he's obviously you know very invested in and returns to again and again. And I actually find his films quite depressing in a way um, mm. not just because he keeps casting Pearl Cherry Moon Zombie and everything and I don't think she's a great actress uh, but you know his love for his wife clearly is sincere and I hope they're still together and very happy but um, there's something about the, the Rob Zombie cinematic universe that I know it's not meant to be you know uh, Sunshine and Lollipops and nor is the Halloween franchise but I just there's something like reductively nihilistic and just quite it is scuzzy and I, I don't know I mean there are there are other scuzzy films I like and admire more, and other nihilistic horror films I like more. I don't think he's reprehensible. I mean, I will say that I think, I think a film like you know a Serbian film, or I can think of someone. Mm. I think Eli Roth is a great example of someone who, if anything, has been given far too many opportunities. <laughs> yep. So um, I have mixed feelings. I know that there are people who, who love him, and I think he's a guy who, again, you, you can't fault his commitment to the genre, um, and his work, his work ethic. But he's just, he's not someone, I've, I've, for various reasons, for research reasons, I've had to engage with several of his films. They don't do a hell of a lot for me, <laughs> to be honest. And um, I particularly dislike this effort. And I, I'm not surprised to learn there was a lot of studio interference. I mean, I think I think this is the worst mismatch of director and material since Jan yeah. the Bont came off speed and was allowed <laughs> to do an adaptation of Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hell House. Like that's just such a bad match of material and director and it you know yeah so have you yeah, unfortunately I, I don't like piss all over people's hard work and such but I just think this is a dreadful film on many levels so we should point out we mentioned at the start of the season this was one of the most hotly contested episodes when I said we were doing a season of Halloween the immediate question was can I talk about the Rob Zombie but, one? but was that because people wanted to shit on it do you think no really no. it um, was defense yes Wow. So, we'll talk about it next week, but yes, the Rob Zombie movies have arguably undergone something of a rehabilitation in the past 10 years. That's great to hear. Only because I, I don't think he deserves the reputation. I think, as Bernice said, I think Eli Roth deserves it. Have you seen The Lords of Salem, though, Bernice? Because that's that's kind of his magnum opus. I have. I have. 
have, and I think there are, I think there are good bits in it. I think he's a director too, and I don't mean this in a condescending way. I think he clearly gained confidence and, and gained sort of a, a sense of control of his material as as he's gone on. But mm. um, I, I think I think he's a filmmaker that occasionally has good bits as opposed to good films. <laughs> Right, um, and I really, I suppose too. I right from that, I really disliked House of a Thousand Corpses. I guess so. I got off in the wrong foot with, with Rob Zombie. Yeah, um, I did not like that film at all, and I think it's, it's, I think it's, yeah, I, I, not a fan at all. Um, so, you know, that's me. I'm Rob Zombie. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, Rob Zombie. If you're listening, I'm sure you're. Don't be sorry. You're a very nice guy, but I'm sure you are. You know, <laughs> I'm sure he's listening. <laughs> nothing personal. Right, let's. It's just not for me. I think when we talk about this movie, it is very important to situate it in context. I think this is a movie that does not exist outside of context. So it is just to speed run this. I want to take a look at where the Halloween franchise is since we last left it when we talked about Halloween Resurrection, which released in 2002, starring Buster Rhymes, and versus where it is in 2009, uh, 2007 when this movie releases, where the horror What's genre... John Cena doing? What? <laughs> John Cena at this point. Oh, I love John oh, in Cena. Terms re- okay, in terms right. of wrestling, yeah. So The Rock is currently holding the, <laughs> the heavyweight championship title. Um, but yes, okay. Sorry, but- when when we did our summer of 99. <laughs> I tried to engage earnestly with American pop culture, which meant embracing the Billboard 100, the weekly box office scores, and occasionally uh, the World Wrestling Federation titles. I, yeah, I think it was it, it, it was this dude. I just thought it was funny. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, anyway, anyway. But I also think it's important to take a look where studio horror is mm. um, in terms of that gap as well, because I think it's very important to understand this movie in the context of just what was happening with comparable franchise at this moment in time. So very quickly, let's speed round what was happening with the Halloween franchise. There is turmoil behind the scenes. Uh, Two big things happen. The first of which is Disney and Miramax part ways. We have probably talked about this in earlier episodes, but basically the Halloween franchise is overseen by Dimension Films, which is the seedier cousin of Miramax. (laughs) Uh, It's part of the Weinstein Company. Harvey oversaw Miramax. That was the awards one that earned something like 250 Oscar nominations in its first 10 years. Uh, It was Bob who oversaw Dimension, which was always the money spinner. It was the one that was responsible for churning out like slasher movies and for churning out Spy Kids movies, both of which intersect here, by the way, because Michael Myers' first victim turns out to be, is it uh, Dylan Sabata? Daryl Sabara. Daryl Sabara, who is the star of the Spy Kids movies which is a nice little in-joke there. But basically, Disney decided to divest itself of its interest in Miramax to spin it out, which led to all sorts of chaos behind the scenes as Dimension had to figure out what they were doing, what their holdings were. Uh, you also had the unfortunate situation where a figure who we've talked about a great deal uh, in previous episodes as well, Mustafa Akkad, who is the guy who had shepherded the franchise. He's the man whose name appeared at the start of every film and who was responsible for basically exerting creative control, ultimate green light over the franchise. He was unfortunately killed during a terrorist attack in Jordan in 2005 uh, with his daughter, leaving his son in charge of the franchise as well, which led to chaos behind the scenes. But there was also just the simple fact that Halloween Resurrection was a bad movie that garnered terrible reviews and did not make much money at the box office, which threw everything into chaos. So Dimension tried to figure out what were they doing next. So they pitched a number of sequels. Most of these sequels began with a sequence in which Freddy would murder Buster Rhymes. <laughs> uh, but basically you had a variety of pitches, including, for example, uh, one that was going to be set in a psychiatric institution, one that was going to be set in a prison, one that was going to be set at Halloween, but hadn't feel had cancelled Halloween and there was a snowstorm. So it was technically Christmas, um, which is... 
did the but I uh, obviously we've already seen the Buster Rhymes one, <laughs> which of course en- ended with a, 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 a like a Will Smith esque um, outro. Yeah, trick or treat, motherfucker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> but anyway, yes. So basically, those pitches come up. There's the idea of doing Halloween: The Missing Years, which was planned to be an interquel. And a sequel to Halloween 2. The idea is it would show Michael's childhood in the Grove Institution. And it would also then jump forward to be a sequel to Halloween 2. Pretending that none of the other Halloweens happened. Basically pulling a H2O again. There was a plan for H25. In which Michael would be held by the behavioral profiling unit of the FBI. Where a cool young agent. Not at all meant to be like Clary Starling. Would like try to profile him and understand him. Basically... Nobody had any idea what they were doing with the franchise. Dimension at the time. Everybody at the meeting needs to have an idea, though. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and these were big meetings. There were lots yeah. of people at these meetings. There are no bad ideas, you guys. Let's hear it. <laughs> but, like, you had this... There was the whispers that, like, Dimension were considering sending Halloween direct-to-video. In this period, they sent, like, Hellraiser, Children of the Corn, From Dust Till Dawn, Mimic, Dracula 2000, The Prophecy, and The Crow sequels to direct-to-videos, effectively killing any chance of those being theatrical franchises. And it was whispered that that is what they were planning to do with Halloween. There was a time where they were considering shooting two back-to-back sequels in Eastern Europe uh, to be burned on direct-to-video, which is what they'd done with Hellraiser, The Prophecy, and Dracula 2000. When Freddy vs. Jason was a surprise hit in 2004, ever quick to jump on the trends Bob Weinstein was like what about hear me out here Halloween versus Hellraiser Ugh. because we happen to own both of those properties Good God. F- film it in Moldova Steven Seagal is attached <laughs> <laughs> all of the investments so that's what's happening like Dimension have no idea what they're going to do with the property meanwhile step back take a look should at have the- said Transnistria shouldn't I sorry <laughs> Um, take a bigger look at what is happening in the horror sphere at this moment in time, right? Because we're coming off the back of the 90s. We're recovering from, like, Scream absolutely shaking up the genre with meta self-aware slasher movies leading to movies like I Know What You Did Last Summer, all that sort of stuff. By this point, we've had scary movies satirize those. They're, they're burnt, they're done, they're yesterday's news. The news now is the remake. The remake of the classic 1970s beloved now canonized horror movie. And that kicks off in 2003, which is the year after the release of Halloween Resurrection. So you get, uh, in quick succession, I'm going to speed round these. <laughs> 2003, you get The Texas Chainsaw Massacre by Marcus Nespel. In 2004, you get Dawn of the Dead by Zack Snyder. In 2005, you get The Amityville Horror, starring Ryan Reynolds, directed by Andrew Douglas. You get House of Wax, directed by Juan Colesera, starring Paris Hilton and Alicia Cuthbert. You get The Fog, which is the first of the Carpenter remakes, directed by Rupert Rainwright. You get Assault on Precinct 13, directed by Jean-Francois Richette, another Carpenter remake. 2006, things really begin to heat up. You get Texas Chainsaw Massacre The Beginning, directed by Jonathan Livesman. You get Black Christmas, directed by The X-Files' Glenn Morgan. You get The Hills of Eyes, Alexandra Aja directing. You get The Omen by John Moore, When a Stranger Calls by Simon West, and The Wicker Man, which Bernice will recall, directed by Neil Labute. Yeah! In 2007, you have The, the Hitcher. Bees! <laughs> the Bees! The Bees! <laughs> 
Why are you have the Hitcher directed by Dave Myers, <laughs> The Hills of Eyes Two directed by Martin Weiss. Two thousand eight is a light year. You have Prom Night by Nelson McCormick. Two thousand nine, you have Friday the Thirteenth. Marcus Nespel returns to the scene of the crime. Sorority Road directed by Stuart Handler. The Stepfather Nelson McCormick going two for two after Prom Night the previous year. My Bloody Valentine three D directed by frequent Hall- Halloween cinematographer Patrick Lusser. Uh, you have, in 2010, A Nightmare on Elm Street by Samuel Bayer, I Spit on Your Grave by Stephen Orr Monroe, Piranha 3D by Alexandra Aja, again, returning to the genre. And you have The Crazies by Brett Eisner. Oh, it's funny how only is- men could direct films in the olden days, isn't it? Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and do such a good job. By, by the olden days, Bernice, you mean all of 12 years I mean, years as ago. in the recent future and well, a lot of the current future, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or yeah. current rest. Uh-huh. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you started in 2003 there, but there's the, the, like the Gust van Sant Psycho, uh, Psycho in 1999. Arguably kicks off the trend, although I would argue that's a much more prestigious example because Gust van Sant is like an Oscar winning director. Yeah. It's a very different breed. Like the point I was, I wanted to get there, the reason why I named all of those directors is that outside of like Zack Snyder, who are the notable people there? Who yeah. are the great directors? Like Marcus Nespel, Juan Colasera. Juan Colasera is the rocks dude now. Um, Neil Butte, Simon There's West, John Juan Moore, Carlos. Martin Weiss. What? <laughs> I will say John Moore is from Dundalk and you don't get many major uh, people who get a major horror film franchise that are from Dundalk. Woo. So I think he's to be he's to be lauded for leaving Dundalk and making The Omen even if it was not very good. <laughs> Sorry. Um, before we jump into talking specifically about Halloween 2007, like as a horror, horror scholar, I want to ask like, Bernice, do you have a thought on that wave of remakes? Like that, what was it that like, do you have a theory about why all of a sudden Hollywood was like, let's just remake these classics that, you know, critics hated in the 1970s, but have since been canonized. Do you have any favorites? Do you have any opinions about the trend? Do you think that any of them will be remembered in any meaningful way? Um, I think, unfortunately, a few of them were made by film by directors, particularly from the French new new extreme wave, like Alejandro Aja, who's a bit was known for maybe high tension and films like that. Mm. Um, I actually happen to really like his um, version of The Hills of Eyes. I think, I know this is controversial, but I actually think, and I love The Craven one, but I think it's actually a better film, uh, technically and, and sort of emotionally. <laughs> Bodied Craven twice in this miniseries. <laughs> I know. I'm so sorry. I've nothing against you. I've nothing against you, Wes Craven. I think you're great. Just John Carpenter slightly better. <laughs> um, but I think a lot of them are quite forgettable. I will say I think Nispel's um, initial take on Texas Chainsaw, Ma- Chainsaw Massacre is not bad. It, one of the things it does that quite a lot of these films do are they're they're actually uh, much more violent and much more graphically violent yes. than um, than their original uh, film. So the, famously, there's actually barely a drop of blood spilled either in Halloween or in Texas Chainsaw. It's more sort of suggestion and, and terror being evoked. Uh, whereas, um, of course, uh, Nispel's take on on uh, Texas Chainsaw, Chainsaw is incredibly um, bloody. And of course, he tried to sort of tries to resurrect the final girl, uh, the tank top wearing final girl. It's one of my favorite horror tropes where Jessica if Beale. she... If she, yeah, Jessica Beale, if she wears a white tank top, she knows about cars. She's probably going to live. Um, but I think mm-hmm. a lot of them are really, to be honest, quite forgettable. I mean, the, as you're reading out that list of films, some of them I was going, oh, yeah. And then others had just completely, you know, passed through. I'd seen them all at the time, mm. but very forgettable. I think I'm sure they'll have their defenders. But I think ultimately, you know, uh, uh, sort of... Uh, not disposable, that sounds very unkind, but just films that really didn't make much of an impression. I think 9-11 has a lot to do with this. You know, a lot of these films are quite 
explicitly nihilistic in tone and there's a sense of hopelessness and they're sort of leading up to the torture porn um, dreadful term but you know, it was sort of widely used Well and, they're in parallel with the torture porn because like the Saul franchise is running this time as well isn't it? Uh, yeah And Hostel And I, I think I think the likes of the, 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 the Chainsaw remake is kind of like uh, a lot of the sort of the graphic nature and, and of course Texas Chainsaw is a very unflinching nihilistic film in a lot of ways but arguably kind of um, even more so in, in these make these sort of remakes um, so I think that has a lot to do with it. Um, American Horror did become a lot more uh, graphic, famously, and a lot more sort of unforgiving and a lot gloomier, actually, in this period. And uh, of course, a lot's been written about that um, academically. So I think that that's probably part of it, too. And also, you've got you've got the safety of franchises, you know what I mean? You've got kids that have grown up that have, you know, may, will have, uh, at least if they haven't directly seen it, they'll have a memory of the title of a film that their parents thought was really, really good. Yeah. So yeah. I think that has an awful lot to do with it. I mean, it's Hollywood has obviously been dealing with franchises from, you know, uh, shortly afterwards they made they made their first films. <laughs> so um, it's hardly surprising that, you know, you would get this, ge- you know, a generation after you had these classic horror films made, you would have these kinds of, I mean, uh, we, we actually did Black Christmas, didn't we? The, the recent remake, um, Yes, last year, and I'd actually totally forgotten that Glenn Morgan even directed one. So you had a lot of TV directors as well associated with sort of high-profile shows at the time. I think a lot of them were ultimately just very forgettable, you know, which is uh, harsh but true. Yeah, I mean, like I, I will admit to having a preference. I think Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead is one of his best films, as <laughs> much as a qualification as that is. I think the Crazies I is think, better. Uh, yeah. Joey singled yeah. out is a good Crazies is good, well. isn't yeah. it? Yeah, it is good. Yeah, I prefer yeah. it. Timothy yeah, Oliphant and. Uh, Who's the other guy? The guy who's married to Michelle Hurd. Garrett Delahunt. That's who it is. Um, he's in there as well. But um, Joey, what about yourself? Do you have any just takes on like the general trend? Do you remember as somebody who loves horror? Because I was going to the cinema while this was happening. Mm. And I remember it just being a relentless onslaught where they fooled me. They fooled me like five times. And I was like, okay, next time I'll, uh, next time I'll know better. But do you remember... Those, that wave of horror remakes. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I think we're, unfortunately, I think we're still kind of recovering from it because horror is still held in very low regard in certain quarters. And that's why you've had this kind of push for elevated horror, which is just bullshit. Obviously, it's just a bullshit term. Um, but yeah, I absolutely, like, I absolutely remember this time. And it, it was it was a difficult time to be a horror fan because as Bernice said, there's nothing to really set these movies apart. A lot of them are really ugly to look at. They're not very well written. They're not taking any risks. I mean, a lot of that is obviously studio interference, but it's also because the people chosen to take them on don't really have any vision of their own. They're just like, yeah, we'll do what they did the last time, except with more violence. And I think there was also a misunderstanding of what horror fans loved about the originals and the idea of updating it for a modern audience. And I think we've seen it recently with the modern Scream sequels and also with the modern Halloween trilogy, that if you... There are some fans that are never going to be happy. You have to ignore those people. Who cares what they think? But if you take what was great about the original, build on it and do something new and something different, it can be really, really special. And none of those movies did anything new or anything different. Um, I mean, aside from the ones that we've mentioned, obviously The Crazies I think is great. I have a lot of love for Piranha 3D. I think it's really fun and really stupid. Um, but I mean, but at the same time, like it obviously it doesn't hold a candle to the original Piranha. Like nobody is thinking, oh, I prefer that one. Um, but yeah, unfortunately. Huh? Is that Piranha 3 Double D? No, that's, no, that's, that's a sequel. One. Oh, okay. Which I yeah, also yeah. enjoyed. <laughs> Um, well, it's on the bottom one, 100, Joey, oh, so you've just volunteered. Oh. 
but uh, but yeah like it, it was it was a tough time to be a horror fan definitely and yeah like i i kind of see some of those movies getting a reappraisal that i don't really think they deserve and i don't know if it's because it's people who were in their teens at that time who are sort of nostalgic because you know a lot of us kind of snuck into 18s movies and stuff and a lot of us went to see these movies once we were of age just because we were of age but that doesn't necessarily mean they were any good <laughs> yeah there is there is very little early naughty's nostalgia i mean you're you're seeing now more movies where like people have flip phones and stuff like that ha. but but um you know, we 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 talk about this a lot about like like new metal, for <laughs> example, and, and about how like um, we don't have that many remnants. Yeah, nobody's from... unironically playing "Bring Me to Life" um, yeah. in there, like you know. But that, of, that's 20, a really 25. bad example like, of new metal. Like the great new. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> well, the great oh. new metal bands are still around: Papa Roach, Slipknot, Linkin Park. Except that he died. Limp Bizkit, like all those bands. They're still around. They're still making I, music. I don't think they have the same relevance. Oh, no, though. not at all. But no, but my point is that the worst of the genre that became synonymous with the genre faded out. Like, I mean, Evanescence, she's a poser anyway. So that was just a rip off of the Kuna Coil. You know what I mean? So it's like, who cares about them? But yeah, the bands that were good bands, even if you didn't necessarily like the music, you know, they stood the test of time and they still have huge followings. And I feel like the the, the most mainstream... <laughs> well, I uh, sorry. The, the this is probably the the the, mo- the most mainstream, most early two thousands, uh, char- character. I guess in America anyway is probably Guy Fieri. Yes, <laughs> but he possibly yes. But yeah. he has a huge following. People love him. Oh yeah, they yeah, yeah. They still love yeah. him, and unironically, so what you're saying is, as goes Ferrari, go- uh, there goes the nation. Is what you're saying. So like the moment we start seeing. Is Guy Fieri not about a decade, like the 2010s to 2015s or so? Is that, you know, Driver's Dine and Dive? Sir? I have no idea. Maybe so. I suppose he's gone from the show... I'm not familiar enough with his oeuvre to be able to... Me neither, <laughs> me neither. <laughs> Frosted that tips. Pa- pass me <laughs> by. <laughs> he... I love that this is what we're talking about, but okay. He, he now has like a chain of restaurants and does a lot of uh, philanthropy, I think. That's cool. It's like feeding uh like um firefighters and stuff i think it's kind he's of... definitely got an early 2000s vibe though doesn't he and like the blackboard mm, backward yeah. sunglasses the you know he's like sort of bleach blonde spiky hair yeah. so. extreme video he's editing fr- fr- yeah. frost frosted tips, frosted tips. Yeah. Like the the kind of Ed Hardy sort of um, the shirts, uh, the, yeah, the the yeah, the kind shirts. of flame shirts, yeah, yeah b- bowling shoes, yeah. Um, but okay, so let's, <laughs> let's yeah, let's park that. <laughs> let's, let's, let's park that. We can come the back to it later. Cultural Guy Fieri's Halloween. I would watch that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. we can come back to that. I mean, if we have time later. Uh, I I think to to Andrew's point there about like the lack of nostalgia that we feel for the early two thousands, like this is. On the show, we talk a lot about the 90s. We talk a lot about nostalgia for the 90s. We also talk a lot about, like, the lacuna that exists in terms of, like, the cultural memory of the 2000s. It's something we we come up, bring up time and time again. And I think there are several reasons for that. You know, we talked about a lot of them before. 
There's a reason why we're nostalgic for the 90s. It's because for a lot of people that felt like a decade of relative prosperity, relative stability. Mm. If you've got the end of history on your 250 bingo card, you can mark that square off right now as a freebie. <laughs> and obviously the 2000s are a lot more, you know, there's turmoil. It's uneven. It's chaos. It's uncertainty. It's political, economic, social unraveling. And there's obviously, I think, less of a desire to romantically remember that. Yeah. Uh, I do also think that there is a broader issue around, say, stagnancy, right? Where it really does feel like the 90s were the last decade where we were consistently doing newish things in culture. Yeah. Where, like, things were tangibly different. And, and look, there are lots of examples of this. Kurt Anderson argues, like, you look at fashion... And you compare fashion from the 70s to fashion from the 80s and their worlds apart. You compare fashion from the 80s and the 90s and their worlds apart. And then there's a point in about 1995 where you could take somebody off the street in 1995 and drop them into 2023 and nobody would think that that was different at all. Nobody would think that was unusual. Mm. And then there are broader discussions about like modern art. Where a lot of the discussion is saying that like modern art hasn't really come on that far from artists like say Damien Hirst, is and obviously that's a that's a you know a very broad sweeping generalization. I think there's obviously interesting things happening in feminist art, in minority art that wasn't happening during the '90s. That is radical. That is new. That is different. Hmm. But when you talk about like the mainstream pop culture, it really does seem like it's frozen in place, and so you can't really be nostalgic for something that hasn't moved on you may as well be nostalgic for the 90s because the 2000s feel culturally like they're not that distinct and i mean i think to bring it all back full circle to the movies we're talking about today like i know remakes and reboots and sequels and franchises were always part of hollywood i think as, as bernice said like they've been making sequels and remakes almost as soon as they started making movies you know that's yeah. just how these things work but it does feel like culture's become increasingly regressive, increasingly IP-driven, increasingly franchise-driven over the past 25 years, where so much of the culture of the 2000s is recycling the culture of the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. You know, we're talking about the Halloween franchise, for example, here, but all those reboots. It's like, why would you be nostalgic for the reboot when you could just be nostalgic for the thing that inspired the reboot? Why wouldn't you just go that extra step further I, I think it's very telling that we have we've just come off like from a Halloween movie that killed off the character of Laurie Strode, admittedly after featuring her twice, to a series of five films in a row that will all star Laurie Strode as a protagonist, played by two different actors. But like the days when Halloween 4, Halloween 5 and Halloween 6 could swap out protagonists and change the final girl, those are gone. Mm. Now yeah. Halloween is we just have Laurie Strode all the time. And I guess that kind of brings us back to like the context of Rob Zombie's Halloween. And with reading the room, I get the sense that I'm going to be the person who steps into the role of defending Rob Zombie's Halloween despite not thinking that it is amazing. In large part because of all those projects I just listed, and I made a point to list all of the directors after them, I would argue that like Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead is arguably the only auteur-driven one of those projects, and it's arguably the only one that endures in any significant way. You know, it's the one that basically built his career that led to him getting a Superman movie indirectly through doing 300. And I think, for me, 
putting this in perspective, having run through and watched all these franchises, right? Having watched the remakes of Friday the 13th, having watched the remakes of A Nightmare on Elm Street, those movies are inevitably, like, the worst of the franchise. I mean, even... Bernice is right, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre reboot is not the worst film in that franchise, but that's because the prequel to the reboot exists. It's a uh, low bar. Came... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it somehow still stumbles over it. It doesn't even, like, gracefully step over it. It kind of clumsy. The most recent one, oh my god, the one on Netflix, Christ. Oh, yeah, the one on Netflix, where, where he kills the influencers. I thought that was um, scary. That really freaked me out. I mean, they did ha- <laughs> Sally Hardesty dirty, obviously, but, like... It did have an Irish actress sitting at Alwyn. Uh, yeah, it was Alwyn. Yeah. So good for her. You know, yeah, she's she got, played she, the role. She, of, she had yeah. a really good role, I thought. But yeah, that aside. And she was great. All, yeah, she was brilliant. There's always this thing of like, you know, killing people, you know, podcasters or influencers. Or Andrew, like, I want you to table that thought for two more movies. Yes. We're going like, to come back to that certain age think <laughs> Yeah. Um, is, <laughs> yeah. People guys, so, someone just sat up to really it's straight behind you, Ramrod Street, some guy in a boiler suit. <laughs> 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 um, but what I would argue is that Rob Zombie's Halloween represents the the only one of these, aside from Dawn of the Dead, that is given to an actual auteur, to given a director who has a particular style, who has a particular influence, that you can point to a movie and go, that is a Rob Zombie movie. Yeah. It's also the first time that, that this happens with the Halloween franchise since John Carpenter's original. It is the first time the franchise says, well, what if instead of hiring, you know, one of John Carpenter's friends or a journeyman director or some guy who did some TV that one time. What if we hire somebody who has a very distinct aesthetic, a very distinct vision, and we give them that property? And I think like that, that is maybe to my mind why, and again, I don't know, I have no scientific way of quantifying or measuring this, but it does feel like there's maybe been a little bit of a reappraisal of these movies where the zombie movies, when they came out, they were reviled by the fans. They were loathed mm. by the fans. They were hated by the fans. Uh, but it does feel like in the intervening couple of years, we've reached a point where, as I said, whenever I reached out to people to be on this podcast, the first question I got back was, cool, I want to talk about the zombie ones. And me having to tell them, no, those are the first ones that got booked up, I'm afraid. Like, it does feel like if any of those movies I just listed, aside from maybe Dawn of the Dead, are going to endure in any meaningful way, it's probably going to be the zombie Halloween movies because they feel like they're the work of an auteur and they feel like they're... And again, I don't know that you get, as much as Joey loves the Gordon Green movies, you don't get those without this. That's another case of them going, okay, the zombie movies maybe didn't work as well as we thought they would. What do we do next? Do we go and do we hire ourselves a Marcus Nespel? Do we hire ourselves a Samuel Bayer? Do we get ourselves a Brett Eisner? They go, no, we'll go and find a director who has a clear vision of what they want to do and we will give them complete creative control. I think that kind of stands to the movie's credit. Yeah. Um, And just in terms of basic production, like the way Zombie tells it is, (laughs) like he was invited to a meeting having done, as we point out, The Devil's Rejects, having done, uh, is it the 1,000, House of a Thousand Corpses? Um, he's invited to a meeting with Dimension. He sits down with Bob and Bob Weinstein. And apparently they're like, we have no idea what we're going to do with this. Um, and then they say, okay, would you think about doing a remake? Because that seems to be hot right now. That's where all the box office is. So Zombie says, at first I was completely not interested. 
There's been a million sequels, each one worse than the last. I always loved the original movie, so I said no. I went home, rewatched John Carpenter's original, and I thought, maybe starting over is the way to go, rather than doing the ninth sequel. You know? You have the idea that, like, Zombie's justification for doing a remake and doing it the way that he did is that I think that when the Halloween thing came up, I was just excited about the idea of making a movie with the character of Michael Myers, but I was kind of burnt out on Myers from all the bad movies. It was, what can we do to reinvigorate this character that has been around for 30 years? And I thought, if we give him a full-bone backstory, then it would seem different. So, like, how do you situate the decision to do a reboot in the context of... So, Bernice, like, after eight sequels, after the tangled mess of continuity, after the Cult of Thorn, after Buster Rhymes' roundhouse-kicking trick-or-treat motherfucker, like, does the idea of doing a reboot make sense to you? Does the idea of doing a remake make sense to you? And, like... Do you understand the logic of zombie? Because we talked, when we talked about the first movie, there was a lot of pushback from yourself and Joey about explaining mm. Michael Myers' backstory. But does it seem like that was maybe the only avenue open at this point? I mean, you can see why that would have presented itself as an obvious solution in terms of not wanting to just repeat what a lot of the sequels have done or add in elements of such ridiculousness that they really detract, you know, like the overt supernaturalism, Celtic cults, Celtic cults, uh, and all that kind of nonsense. <laughs> Sam Hain, if you will. You know, uh, little girls, little girls who are actually then the reincarnation of Michael Myers or whatever rubbish was happening in Halloween Psychic 4 links. or 5. Um, so long story short, I guess, you know, it makes sense. And I think he anticipated a trend that actually, probably to a lot of filmmaking detriment, a lot of... Um, big Hollywood films and TV shows do, which is, you know, let's go back to the original source material, but give people more. We think we're going to give people more of a good thing. And so if they like this particular character in this particular situation, let's flesh it out. Let's, you know, famously George Lucas is kind of the poster child for this. But of course, Disney is busy flogging that dead horse as much as it can. Um, so I think he anticipated, obviously, I think where a lot of uh, contemporary sort of mass market media has gone in recent years, you can't blame him for that. I think the instinct to have more of a backstory as we mentioned when we discussed the original film a few weeks ago you know as I made the case I think we were talking about Michael Myers is arguably much more effective the less we know about him so the very act of giving him more of a backstory is to be honest problematic unless you handle it very carefully because it can detract it really takes away the mystery and the atmosphere Um, I think unfortunately Zombie doesn't succeed with the I think a lot of the trouble here is that the backstory that he has, and it's such a big part of the film. I mean, I was, I'm always surprised. It was, it's it's well over, I think, about half, roughly half the running yeah. time, isn't it? You know, it's a two-hour, yeah. 10-minute film or something, and it's well over an hour before we get to Haddonfield Halloween present day. I think the trouble is that the backstory itself is such a ploddingly obvious um here's a evil child with a per, with a, a troubled family background that it's almost as if he has kind of, I'm sure we'll get into it so we'll detail it all but like there's a very obvious checklist of cliched things that are happening to this child or in this child's home or the serial killer profile that we have to work through behaviors that this child yeah it's basically going to the with the mcdonald trifecta you know like yeah fire starting killing animals he's literally introduced you know in a cloud mask hurting a rat it's just it's so it's so i guess pedestrian the execution of of the of the backstory is is i think really um not that effective and i'll have plenty of time to go on about the reasons why i think that that is but so 
I think the instinct, you, I think you're both absolutely correct in that, you know, Zombie is someone who's got his own unique sensibility, which is very much to his credit. A lot of the films you mentioned, they're absolutely in the same vein as this one, are eminently forgettable and anyone really could have directed them. Only Rob Zombie could have directed Rob Zombie's Halloween. I know it's a very obvious thing to say, but you <laughs> can, but you can tell there is that distinct sense of a particular um, authorial sensibility there, which is, I think, to his credit. Uh, but for me, I do think, as I said, I think it's a mismatch between director and material. And I think the pedestrian nature of the backstory and the plotting, the obvious nature of the backstory. How could this child not have turned out to be a masked killer, for Christ's sake, um, is really to its detriment. Um, you know, so, yeah, I'm sure if Joey has a lot to say on it, but that would be my initial thoughts on it. So, Joey, how would you kind of situate this in terms of like as a Rob Zombie movie, but also as the ninth Halloween movie, having spent eight movies with Michael Myers. <laughs> so what's interesting about this is that it does kind of stand out amongst all of his other movies. It's a lot sleeker. It's a lot slicker. It's very obviously a studio movie, even though it's, you know, it's also definitively a Rob Zombie movie. For me, I disagree about the backstory. I think the strongest elements of this movie are his elements. I think where it all falls apart is when it starts to become this like really boring, ugly shot by shot remake of the original and he just can't Where you're quoting lines you're yeah. recycling lines and repeating dialogue and as we yeah. talked about um with the original like the strength of that movie is deborah hill she knew how teen girls talk these do not talk like teen girls they actually talk like rob zombie's other characters which is fine in the context of something like house of a thousand corpses it's not fine when you've got like teenagers and like that scene with the mother when she's when she's just being really rude with the bagel it just it's like yeah. what is this who in their right mind thought, I mean, I cringe watching it and I'm 35. Do you know what I mean? I'm just like, I would never talk like that in front of my mother. Where I think the strength of it is, and I know you were saying you're not a fan of Sherry as an actor. I am. Um, I've watched her across all these movies. I've seen her give her a whole, a whole variety of performances. Her strongest is definitely in The Lords of Salem, but I love her. I love her as Baby as well. I think that's a really fun character. I always compare her to Kevin Smith's wife, Jennifer Schwabach, who cannot deliver a line to save her life. And every time she shows up, it's just, it's so wooden. Like, I'm talking about the most basic dialogue she can't. And so Sherry, so Sherry for me, especially in this movie, she's kind of the beating heart of this movie. And I actually, I think it's quite a powerful performance because I know you're saying, how could this kid not turn out as a serial killer? I think there is a softness to him in the way he deals with the baby and the way he deals with his mom. And I think there is a hint, at least in the beginning, that there's hope for him. Because, I mean, those first couple of murders are kind of justified. Like, he kills his bully who's a dick to him. He kills his stepdad who's horrible. Um, and, I don't know, like, Rob Zombie makes the subtext text with the sister where he's, like, pervy with her, which is kind of... Touches her. Yeah, which you is... You get the scene of the close-up of the hand on the skin. Exactly, which is, like, gross and weird. That's only kind of hinted at in the original Halloween where he's kind of watching her. But, yeah, I think... So, I think those elements of it work for me to a certain extent. It's like I was saying when we talked about the original. Rob Zombie's clearly, I mean, we know he's a horror fan. He's clearly spent his whole life obsessing over why did Michael Myers do this? And the reasons he comes up with, yeah, they're not the strongest reasons. They're kind of obvious reasons. But I do think that first half is stronger than the second half. I think it's stronger when he's trying to do something original. Mm. Um, and I think a lot. I think a lot of that strength comes from Sherry and I think a lot of it comes from Malcolm McDowell as well. Like, I think... Even though he wanted to do something different with Michael Myers, I think we see the movie more through Loomis and the mom. That's who we see Michael through. 
which is kind of a fault because we should really be seeing it through Laurie, but whatever. Um, and to me, that's, that is kind of interesting. I also think it's important to note that with the recent true crime boom, I wonder if that's why this movie is being reappraised because that stuff in the beginning is very true crimey, mm. you know, with the rats and everything yeah. like that. I'm not a true crime, true crime fan personally. I think that stuff's kind of gross, but I wonder if people are looking back on it through that lens and being like, oh, this is kind of interesting from what we know about serial killers. Maybe. I, yeah. I, I want to, again, this is the thing where I get the sense I'm going to be the person who will speak up for this movie, <laughs> but in terms of like a witness for the prosecution, <laughs> as we pointed out when we talked about the first movie, like the, the Michael Myers stuff is very overtly, even from John Carpenter's original where he is the shape and a plank. It's the young man who is violent towards women. It's yes. like that specter that haunts American pop culture. And it's that figure that is just monstrous and evil and is responsible for so much, so much violence <laughs> uh, when it comes to things like spree killings and the way that we talk about those. Um, and again, it's a conversation we've had in the media recently where it's like how you talk about the men who do these things. Yes. And the way that you validate them and the way that you paint them as tragic figures if one were being a witness for the prosecution for this movie, you could argue like, well, why would you make Michael Myers a sad sack guy? Like, why are you watching Halloween and going poor Michael Myers? Because yeah. that is the thing that I get from the two zombie movies is the sense of them being empathic to Michael in a way that none of the other Halloween movies are. Yeah. In yes. that they believe that Michael is fundamentally human. They believe that there is a small child inside him. Not to get spoilers for next week's movies, but in a very literal sense, <laughs> there is a small child still inside him that maybe you could reach. And, you know, there is an argument about, well, we have enough pop culture that does that. We have enough news coverage of these people who do these things that talk about, oh, how sad it was that they were rejected and mm. they felt lonely. And they wrote these blogs about how lonely they were and how sad they were. I mean, is it intentional that you take away the kind of empathetic uh, connection? Oh, I think Laurie so. Strode? I think so. I think, yeah, he's presented in a very, not a flattering light, but I mean, you have Loomis sit down and tell him, "Oh, I failed you." Like he. No, I, 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 I mean that that you detract from your connection to Laurie Strode. Oh, absolutely, yeah, and I think that's one of the great failings of the movie, because I do, that, I do like Scout Taylor Compton in this role, and she was the same age Jamie Lee Curtis was. She was nineteen, and I just we don't really get to know her. But it, what, what, what we? Yeah, and I think I think that's a failing that the film can never really come back from. She's she's barely sketched in, and it's she doesn't get much of a chance to really establish that character at all. I mean, I was actually much more interested in her parents than her. Which yeah, I do. We, I do think she gets more to do in the in the second movie, and I think that's he. Yeah, it's definitely a meatier character for her and a more complex character for in the second movie. I don't know if this movie is just kind of establishing that she's there and that she's damaged i guess because well you know obviously with the with the modern trilogy there's been a lot of talk about the trauma <laughs> to use jamie lee curtis's uh word but they deal with that really well in rob zombies halloween 2 as well where she's just like a complete mess who cannot move on from what happened which is completely understandable i feel like though that that like what we do get is isn't charming interesting like our um mysterious or mm. kind of like deep I, or and and she's kind of like this kind of that the character is kind of a, a, a crass irritable okay um can i can i push back on that just a little bit I, sure. I think i think 
one of the things okay well i think first of all the movie understands that you have one laurie strode and it's jamie lee Curtis. yes right and you, you have this role that has been played iconically and any actor that you put in a situation where you were asking them to play that role that was played by Jamie Lee Curtis, you were it's going... It's like she, she is playing a different character. Yes. She okay, is. That is yeah. yeah, that is that is that is what I would argue. Mm. Yeah. And I would also make the case that, and I want to be very careful about how I phrase this, but I think the movie, whether rightly or wrongly, and we've talked about, when we talked about the original Halloween, we talked about the sexual politics of slasher movies. And we talked about this cliche of the virginal victims. And we talked about this idea of the knife as a phallic symbol being plunged by a man into a woman. I think it is very deliberate that this movie does several things. The first of which is, A, it allows its teenage girls to be heavily sexualized and heavily sexually active without being punished. So Laurie is no longer virginal or uncomfortable. She's introduced doing that sex joke in a way that makes it clear that she knows what sex is and is comfortable with it. Mm. Um, in a way that Laurie isn't. Now, I'm not arguing that's better. I'm not arguing. I'm just saying that I think that's a deliberate choice in context. I also think part of that being a different choice in context is that, and again, Bernice made the point when we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, there is a tendency to erase male victims in slasher movies, but generally speaking, there are more female victims in slasher movies. In this movie, there are not. In this movie, he very pointedly kills a lot more men mm. than he kills women. And very pointedly, Annie survives. Yes. Sheriff Brackett's daughter survives um, the assault at the end. I, I do on... Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I, I do think that is a choice i think it's very like he goes out of his way to make sure that judith isn't his first kill yeah. like he goes out of his way and judith is the character who gets the most sympathetic death like the bully the the bully literally takes a cap off a little kid and spits in it yeah. on his way to get murdered so you don't care about him the father is an, ab is an abomination <laughs> yeah that i was wondering yeah did did that did 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 that spike it did 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 he improv that? Because <laughs> like when whenever you ask an actor to like, okay, you're just really horrible person. It's like I'm gonna do this method. Yeah, I'm gonna improvise. I can get, but I do think it's it's very telling that like zombie makes a point that Judith isn't the first kill, mm. and when Judith is killed that kill is more uncomfortable and yes. more unpleasant and more visceral. And like in a way that, and again, we had this conversation, we talked about the first Halloween, we probably talked about it since the portrayal of like the slashing and the way that it's presumed for a male audience or whatever, like the question of whether or not you are titillating them or whether you're making them uncomfortable. Mm. I do think that zombie is very good at making deaths uncomfortable. There are several deaths when you watch this movie where you feel uncomfortable and you feel deeply unpleasant in a way that i don't remember feeling at any point in any previous halloween movie and i think that's deliberate i do think he's reacting against and the question is like i don't think halloween deserves those criticisms we talked about it when we talked about the movie but i do think that zombie is perhaps engaging with that criticism of slashers sure. yeah um, and kind of like deconstructing is a loaded word that always sounds like you're over intellectualizing but he is playing i think with those expectations it, in in the movie's defense if i were making an argument in defense of it it's interesting going back to what bernice and joey had said i, I kind of agree with uh, bernice that i i was kind of like sighing at the decision to kind of put so much exposition in but i have to agree with joey that that was actually the 
best part of the movie. The strongest part. Yeah, and and like almost to the point where I, I, I would have liked to have seen that be the movie. Mm. Well, that is the push and pull over the movie where like he said, basically, look, I got to do that half. And then in the other half, I had to do what Bob Weinstein yeah. said, which was right. remake beat for beat the original Halloween. Yeah, and it does suffer from uh, maybe that's like... And one more, one more witness for the defense. I suppose, yeah. yeah, one more witness for the defense before we jump into the three questions. The spoiler zone. I am much more forgiving of this movie, having watched eight previous Halloween movies. Yeah, I am much more forgiving of this movie's decision to explain Michael Myers. Because I know that the franchise is always going to explain Michael Myers. Like, this is why I'm kind of disappointed that Andrew has been reset so he only remembers the original Halloween <laughs> and not the intervening seven sequels. But, like, well, uh, Buster Rhymes held up that, uh, <laughs> uh, that flash. Um, you and Buster Rhymes. He said, I mean, said, look, look, obviously, look, okay, yeah, yeah, look, like the Men look, in Black. Thing. Like the Men in Black. He, yeah, wiped, yeah. he wiped your memory before yeah. he did the rap at the end. Yeah, yeah. at the end. Um, but my, my thing is that, like, that stable door is open and that horse is bolted. Yeah. The idea that we are ever going to have movies that don't try to explain Michael Myers at this stage seems gone and alien. By the time this movie comes out, it's been 29 years of explaining Michael Myers, starting with Halloween 2, starting, and then you get into the weird stuff where it's like, oh, he's, it's a secret cult. It's Celtic cow, Samhain is <laughs> responsible for it. It's the cult of Thorn. And I kind of... I think that if you accept that you are going to remake Halloween and if you accept that you are going to always try to explain Michael Myers, I also think that if you're going to remake a movie like John Carpenter's Halloween, you cannot try to remake it. You cannot try to do a shot for shot remake. Yeah. You cannot try to emulate him. You cannot try to compete on his level. We talked about it. It's a perfect movie. It is as perfect a movie as exists. It's like trying to remake Jaws. Any attempt to do that is he's going to suffer by comparison. So I kind of respect that what Zombie does is he looks at Halloween as an intellectual property, as an idea, as a brand, doesn't try to compete with Carpenter and instead does the exact opposite. Like the entire premise of this movie is what if Loomis was wrong? Yeah. Like the entire premise of Carpenter's Halloween is what if Loomis is right? Mm. And the entire premise of like zombies movies is what if Loomis is wrong? And it's I think if I were speaking for the defense, which apparently I am, I would say I think that's the the best choice you could have made in the situation you find yourself. Yeah. Cuz in 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 the first movie it's like come on, this is just like a patient and yeah, he killed like one person like years ago <laughs> yeah maybe he's uh, fine you know pe people change <laughs> uh, for, seven for, years of spanking therapy for, does wonders for, yeah Ed, <laughs> edward camper exactly. got let out of jail after killing his grandparents he only served four years in a psychiatric institute and it worked out fine it was just fine in santa yeah. cruz at the early 1970s <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and he told them not to let them go. It's like the thing about Kempler, which is absurd, is he turned himself in. Yeah. There's that wonderful moment in Mindhunter, the TV show, where he's like, it occurs to me that you are only basing your findings on those of us who were stupid enough to let you catch us or turn ourselves in. Like, does it seem to you that your data set may be flawed here? Um, all right. So three questions to get us started. I think I know what the answers are going to be. But Bernice... 
do you think Rob Zombie's Halloween belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Sadly, I do not. You'd be shocked to learn. Shocked. Shocked. <laughs> and a stunning... Not really. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What's that line from this? I'm shocked, shocked. Well, not actually that shocked. Um, <laughs> Joey, what about yourself? Uh, no, probably not. I think it's an interesting movie. I think it's an, yeah. I But no, <laughs> sadly not. <laughs> and Andrew? Yeah, I don't think it does. It, it, it can't quite escape its uh, constraints of being like a, f- a franchise remake. And and I I think like with that intellectual property I think you 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 can do interesting things but if 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 your hands are tied a little bit like like here and I I I don't think he he's not on in the same league and that's okay. Um, I mean, how with, many filmmakers are in the same league as like exactly. John Carpenter? Like yeah. Steven Spielberg's Halloween 2007, maybe. Mm. Yeah, it's like a difficult thing. It's like, how do you grade it? It's an impossible. It without... Yeah, it's, it was an impossible yeah. task. He was sad, and I think he did his his best. And I think Darren, you're right. Of all these remakes, this is definitely the most interesting one, and the one that's probably going to be talked about, you know, ten, twenty years into the future. I feel I feel like if if you're if you're gonna judge um, Rob Zombie, maybe the league is multi hyphenates who are better known for their other hyphen. <laughs> you know, um, like like um, say Fred Durst. Ha! Like okay, uh, so but, this is better than the fan. Yeah, yeah. It wouldn't be hard. There's, there's no but, moment where John Travolta that, like, says, "I pooped my pants." Jordan Peele and like Boots Riley, they go from like. <laughs> You know, they're no longer they're comedian filmmakers. Make, uh, they're just filmmakers. Comedians. Who, yeah, yeah, exactly. Ooh. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, Andrew, I see your point about zombie not being in the same league as uh, Carpenter. And I raise you this quote from Malcolm McDowell. Oh, you'll be surprised. But he reminds me of Stanley, he adds, referring to Kubrick and their work together in A Clockwork Orange. Not in looks, you'll be glad to know. It's because he has an absolute belief in what his vision is, but he doesn't come with any preconceived ideas of how to do it. If it's not working, boom, it's ditched. Um, And then basically he says, you know, very few have the confidence to be open to that kind of thing. And Rob has that. That's where he's very similar to Stan. Mm. I like the way he says Stanley. Like, it's such a flex. (laughs) (laughs) It's It's like Paul McCartney being like, my friend John. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, but to be fair, he could shorten it to Stan. My good friend Stan. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I read that. Even I, who like is the defense. Apparently I'm defending the movie on this podcast. I was like, <laughs> really, Malcolm? Really? But he did go on. He did go on to star with him, obviously, in Halloween 2. But he did 31 with him as well, I believe. So he obviously did. it's a very fruitful, very satisfying collaboration. Oh, I forgot he was in 31. And no. Yeah, he wears the big powdered wig. Yeah, he's the Marquis de Murder or whatever it is. I actually watched it during like week four of the first pandemic lockdown. So I think maybe my apathetic reaction to 31. (laughs) As opposed to your enthusiastic reaction to to all the other Rob Zombie movies. But that opening monologue from Richard Brake is so fantastic. Again, he gives he gives these actors like really meaty roles. Yeah, well, that's the thing that I love about these movies is that the actors in these movies have faces. Yeah. Like Richard Price, who plays the principal, you look at that face and it's like that 
would never appear in a major blockbuster today. He mostly plays villains. Yeah. 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 And it's like, no, he's just the principal. Mm-hmm. That's that's who he is. He's just a guy. He's just an yeah. ordinary guy. And it's like, wow, ordinary guys don't look like that in movies that often. And no, I do not believe this belongs on the list of the 250 greatest movies ever made. Uh, I think it maybe has a place culturally in the conversation about remakes. Mm. Um, I think it's maybe <laughs> in the top half of the Halloween franchise. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> Rob Zombie is like, uh, from here on in, I'll be representing myself. (laughs) I would like to distance myself from Mr. Mooney. Uh, (laughs) His comments that I shouldn't be in the 250 were not discussed with my counsel. Beforehand. (laughs) But um, so, Bernice, is this on your own personal 250? And how would you rank it in terms of Halloween movies? Um, In terms of films within the Halloween franchise, as opposed to a broader, because I know you and you and Andrew have a whole Halloween. Yeah. Okay, Halloween. Oh. Yeah. Sorry, I com- convoluted myself there. I just said a fisherman's mm-hmm. friend and they're just very strong, so I'm working through a lot of menthol right now. <laughs> um, I would not have it in the top in my 250. It would be far from the 250. You know, I wouldn't eject it into outer space. There are certainly films I, I respect less and hate more. Um, so that's damning with faint praise. Mm. Yeah, I think, I think when you look at the, you know, slow motion train wreck that is much of the Halloween... <laughs> cinematic universe <laughs> uh, you know I, I'd probably put it in the top 10 this is why Andrew has rebooted himself um, in, the top, in 10. the top 10 yeah <laughs> wow <Yes>. well played <laughs> I love that you were like the earlier comment I made was the backhanded compliment but don't worry <laughs> well played uh, and Joey what about yourself would this be in your own top 250 as our resident Rob Zombie expert <laughs> how would you place it in his filmography and where would you rank it in terms of the, the Halloween franchise, top, middle, or bottom? So, or even, like, if you have an exact ranking. <laughs> so it wouldn't be in my personal top 50. As far as his movies go, hmm, it's probably middle of the pack. It and H2, I think, do some interesting stuff. And, yeah, they're definitely worth further a further look. As far as the Halloween franchise goes, I would rank this, the like, both of his pretty high. Because I think most of the franchise is absolute garbage. <laughs> Like, I think <laughs> this has been a fun four weeks. <laughs> like, no, I think one and two are great. I think the modern trilogy is wonderful. And then I think these two are pretty, um, pretty interesting for what they get right and also what they get wrong. And yeah, the rest of them are, they kind of all blend into one in a weird way. Mm. Um, so yeah, for me, for me, I'd, I'd rank it pretty high. Like, and I also kind of take issue with there's this weird feeling among horror fans that like four and five are actually really good. Yeah. Or like even six, and I just I just don't understand that at all because I think at least he's trying to do something, and it's something unique to him, which is better than I don't know just throwing Buster Rhymes in there. Yeah, good point. Well, that is the thing where it you know where it's like there is a certain kind of conservatism to horror movie fans. There is where it's like there is a kind of like a pure ideal of what a horror movie franchise should be and anything that deviates from it is heresy and must be burnt to the ground like and we're obviously going to talk about it when we get to halloween ends halloween ends and the backlash yes. to that like and i mean i think that movie's a masterpiece i but think fair play to them isn't that an instinct though not just particular to horror but the genre fandom in general that there's quite often a significant section that really overreacts to you know casting changes and a perception of you know 
if a, a character doesn't exist in a comic book doesn't exactly resemble yeah it's a different race god forbid from the comic book version oh, i mean you know it's i think it's not i got to say you know not all horror fans but it's it's not just horror i think science fiction <laughs> no. fa- fantasy fandom um has conniptions about stuff like this as well if we can use the word conniptions in the podcast and i hope that we can huh. But it's also, there's also a push that you have to listen to the fans. Like, that's the latest thing. And people doing these, like, petitions and and stuff. And I just think it's madness. Like, since when do you guys know anything, you know? Well, and it's often the most obnoxious minority of fans as well. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So, like, anyone who's willing to engage with Rob Zombie's Halloween, Rob Zombie's Halloween 2, and have an actual conversation about it, great. Anyone who's just going to dismiss it out of hand while they're heralding Halloween 4. Nah, I don't want to talk to you. I, I do want to... Sorry, I'm just digging through the notes here. I should have read this earlier, but this is Rob Zombie kind of justifying his uh, decisions creatively with the movie. Okay. My movie is not a follow-up to John Carpenter's movie, he says. It's a reinvention of 30 years of crappy sequels. Believe me, the mystique of the original Halloween has been trampled and flushed down the toilet 9,000 times by the seven shitty sequels that followed Carpenter's movie. <laughs> to me, Michael Myers had no mystique left. It was just a stuntman walking around in a crappy rubber mask and a jumpsuit, looking ridiculous, getting beat up by Buster Rhymes. Mm-hmm. So I felt that bringing him back and giving him a backstory and a life and presenting a new way to look at the character is much more of a legitimate way to approach it than going, here he is, spooky guy standing in the shadows with a mask. See, like, I agree with him. Yeah, he's not wrong. I agree with everything he said. And something that actually we didn't talk about when we talked about the first movie, there's not really an actor who's synonymous with Michael Myers the same way that Kane Hodder, for example, is synonymous with Jason and later Derek Mears. And then all or England and with Freddie, yeah, or obviously Robert England with Chucky, and then Roger L. Jackson obviously does the voice of Ghostface. Um, so there isn't really, and I think that's kind of a reason why the sequels maybe failed a little bit as well because Laurie is kind of that for Halloween, and then once yeah. She, yeah. once she's gone or once she isn't given something to do, you're like, well, who cares? So I also I know he didn't mention this, but I think casting like this giant hulking former wrestler as Michael Myers is an interesting choice as well because. Even though the original, he's just a normal dude walking around, that's why he's scary. The idea, and they really do show off his size in the beginning, like the camera just keeps panning up and up. He doesn't even fit in the shot, like he just has his hair. I think that's really cool and really scary. Um, When they mentioned that he lifted the ton tombstone or whatever, that's great. One guy. One guy. And he's like, well, how would he carry that off? So, yeah, I think all that stuff is, is... Again, I think he's putting his own spin on it, especially because, as he said there, he's like, well, if it's just a stunt guy, who cares? He cast someone who had an actual presence, you know, who really took up the frame. It's just occurred to me, is is the seed of Chucky uh, Redman appearance um a response ah, okay. to well, Buster Rhymes. Possibly, it, yeah. They, it yeah, was after that was two thousand and two yeah. and Seed of Chucky, Chucky was two thousand four. It wouldn't surprise me. It is also notable that part was written for uh, Quentin Tarantino, but he turned Boo. it down. I'm glad. <laughs> um, it, that was the list. It was Quentin Tarantino and Redman. Those were the two. <laughs> um like with most decisions in Hollywood. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, like you mentioned Tyler Maine there it is worth very quickly just talking about like the John Carpenter-ness of this because every Halloween movie ends up in some relationship with John Carpenter one of the things I like about Carpenter is that he is remarkably open about like he honestly just wants to get paid his films are his films none of the remakes will touch them none of the remakes will impugn them like I think there's there's that quote when he's asked about like 
how do you feel about them remaking The Fog or remaking The Thing or remaking Assault on Precinct 13? And they're always worse than your movies. And I think the the answer I remember reading is, well, you see, when they remake one of my movies, this incredible thing happens. I go to my mailbox. Yeah. There's a check. <laughs> and I have lots of money. It's great. Um, and like, there's the story that like Zombie tells, where obviously like Zombie is a musician. He performed with White Zombie. He got into filmmaking through, I believe, Beavis and Butthead of all things. <laughs> like he was, he helped animate a sequence for Beavis and Butthead, uh, and then he was like, "Hey, I can direct a movie." <laughs> but he worked with Carpenter on Escape from Los Angeles, Escape from L.A., and apparently he knew him semi-casually. And before he took the part, or before he took the the, the directing position, he literally just asked him is this going to offend you? And Carpenter apparently said to him at the time, no, make it your own. Mm. And like, it's, there are wonderful interviews. Again, Zombie is very candid in a way that is refreshing uh, when it comes to creatives on this podcast. I was just really delighted to be given this opportunity to, to, to make another movie in a fantastic franchise. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Seven shitty sequels flushed down the toilet nine But that's times. how you can tell he's a horror fan and he's a lifelong horror fan because that's what a horror fan would say. If you asked a real horror fan, they'd be like, well, the rest sucks, so who cares? You know what I mean? What, there, like, there are two quotes from him when he's asked, like, about Carpenter, which I love. The first one is... I keep being asked, hey, should we show this to Carpenter or so on and so forth from the original? And what would what would he think? And my response is just, what the fuck do I care? <laughs> when I get asked what my advice is in the business, I tell people to just focus on what they want to do. Because if you start worrying about what other people want, you're screwed. <laughs> That's quote number one. Quote number two, which I also like is, I talked to him before I made the movie and I haven't talked to him since. I mean... I didn't really want to call him up and say, what did you think? He probably never even saw it because, I mean, I've known John for a while. And sometimes I get the feeling like, you know, talking about Halloween 30 years later is not that high on his priority list. So, you know, if he ever wanted to talk about it, I'd talk about it. But I'm certainly not going to pester him about it, which I quite like. Yeah. We should note, though, that apparently in the years since the relationship has unfortunately soured. I think Zombie basically made some quote in a VH1 show um, about how... Carpenter was cold to him or, you know, told him to go off or whatever. And Carpenter responded to that saying, he lied about me. He said that I was very cold to him when he told me what he w- that he was going to make Halloween. Nothing could be further from the truth. I said, make your own movie, man. This is yours now. Don't worry about me. I was incredibly supportive. Why that piece of shit lied, I don't know. Huh. He had no reason to. Why did he do it? And then here is the bit where I want to get back Everything to the... Everything was going great for Rob Zombie and John Carpenter's relationship. But that's what, that's what Rob Zombie originally said, he said. Yeah, I know, I know. So Th- why did he change it? This is one of those great horror movie, like, beefs that makes no sense, where it's like... Yeah. Um, but to the point, you were talking there about Tyler Mayne. Mm. Like, Carpenter, who apparently... Carpenter watched the movie. Uh, and his big beef is... I thought he was too big. Yeah, I think he's. I think he's completely right. <laughs> I thought Michael Myers was too big. I, th- I think the casting of Maine for me just. Uh, well, I just think it, I know because I, th- I think Joe, you make a good case for why he does have this immense, powerful presence. It is something genuinely original, mm. but it's just so incredibly ridiculous. It's just it's it, it just descends into absolute silliness. It's already. I mean, I've not to get silliness, but I I cannot believe that child. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of protein. <laughs> Grew up to become Tyler Mint. I just, it I, is I, a, I know, I know, it's a, a, it's a leap. All films are a leap of faith and a leap of belief. But for me, it's just, it's so, 
It's the fact that you don't see Michael Myers. It's the fact that he's this slight, ordinary looking guy. One of my favorite moments in the entire uh, original is when the mask is briefly ripped off his face and you see him. And he's just this stunned looking, ordinary as anything looking, just yeah, startled, looking really startled and actually looking quite vulnerable and quite boyish, Mm. which if anything makes it more horrific. And this is just the casting of Tyler Mann, essentially a character who more famous to be associated with superhero films in particular, I just think completely ruins any sense whatsoever that the character the, the, that the Michael Myers figure has of of sort of 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 this sort of quiet menace. You know, he's not someone that you'd feel to notice standing behind a sheet. You know what I mean? As the original, I just, <laughs> well, and and I, <laughs> hey, Bob, you seem to have been working out when you went down to get the beer. You <laughs> well, it's a very. I do think too. This is not remotely sorry to. Um, to slag off a child actor because obviously I think sometimes no. I'm thinking of like Jake Lloyd and, and the Phantom Menace that per kid got dogs abuse and it did him an awful lot of harm yeah so, but I will say that I think that the, the I think that Zombie did not get a great performance from that youngster I think it's very Dig it's clearly meant to be oh sorry I wasn't aware of his I forgot his name Um, I think it's um, I think it's not a strong child performance I think if you're mm. going to have an iconic evil child you need a you need um. It, it, it needs to be, you know, if you think of the, the classic um, sinister ch- child performances in horror and uh, the remake of The Omen actually um, suffers from a similar problem. You need you need a, a kid that at whatever stage in their career where they can really pull that off. And unfortunately, I don't think this youngster was at that stage in his career. And I, I think he was also the material that he was working wasn't particularly great. So you're meant to take, the, you know, that the... the that this kid then grows up to become <laughs> Michael Myers and I just remember the cinema when I saw Tyler Mann go you know Jesus Christ I just I, it completely <laughs> took me out of any I don't know I will say, yeah sorry but my rant concludes but I do I do think I, I, I think that the casting of Tyler Mann is actually a really big mistake um, I, I think I would... it's been another slasher film with Tyler Mann as a killer absolutely but the fact that he's meant to be Michael Myers specifically nope not for me so I wonder. I wonder. Did Skylar Gasando read for mm-hmm. um, um, uh, Michael Myers? I, I, yeah, he would have been good. I, yeah, they, like it. It would have been. I. I think more like the original. But the the, the, the fact is, I think that this is a very different. Yes. Mike Myers. That it, it. 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 Like there is something very stoppable about um the original mike myers if you if you only confirm the kill <laughs> I, I, lo- I love that it, we've, we're now calling him mike i mean Laurie basically beats the hell out of him uh which i kind of like you know like if people forget this but she stabs him repeatedly before loomis comes yeah. along and shoots yeah. him mm. i think also it could be seen being generous as a metaphor for just how much like he's one of the ways I think the movie is quite strong is how it shows gradually his loss of humanity. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like the masks are stupid. I always just think of like Slipknot, which makes me laugh. But um, <laughs> but I think... It's the early naughties of it. Well, yeah, it there's, is very naughty. There's yeah. that, definitely. But I, I, I agree with you that I don't think the kid's performance is particularly strong. I think he's stronger when he has to be sullen mm. and when he's not when he's not given as much dialogue. But I think his interactions with Sherry once he's actually in the mental institution are really strong and I think with Loomis as well. But yeah, I wonder if it's just kind of a very obvious representation of how he's just gone completely the other way and now he's just this superhuman evil. But I also like the gentle giant stuff when he's like making his masks in his room and stuff. 
I think all that stuff is quite strong. And then I love his friendship with Danny Trejo. Yeah. And when he's when he's about to kill him, Danny's like, Mikey, I was good to you. And it's so heartbreaking. But again, it's the right, obviously it's the right choice because Michael Myers isn't going to leave anyone anyone alive. And because he's left the baby sister alive, you think, oh, there's a little shred of humanity there. And this is Rob Zombie's way of saying there's no humanity there anymore. Even someone who's been good to him, he just doesn't care. But yeah, I wonder if it's kind of a visual shortcut for, you know, this gigantic, unstoppable evil, maybe being generous. I was going to say just briefly the, the Danny I love the Danny Trejo appearance actually and I was no yeah. Danny Trejo because I'd forgotten what happened to Danny Trejo is genuinely upset I know he's so great but they have that relationship that's kind of quite like I think they're taking a fair bit from um, the Sands of the Lambs and Han- actually as well but you know the idea that the orderly kind of understands this very dangerous uh, patient that can kind of can kind of work around yes. is safe around them you know, like Barney and, and the Hannibal Lecter in, in, um, in the, the first Sands of the Lambs that uh that uh, there's a sense that it's people who violate those boundaries are going to suffer. But then, of course, that, well, we won't say, I will just say for viewers or, re- or listeners who can't say it, that actually uh, Andrew now has a very Danny Trejo style mustache. Was mustache. that in it? Like, uh, <laughs> homage or was in that, tribute, homage. Was that planned? <laughs> yeah, I have, um, um, I also have a, a, a bum bag. Um, <laughs> My hair is slicked back in a ponytail, and I'm covered covered in tattoos. <laughs> but I, but I, and again, like it's just worth running down the. Ca- we mentioned Danny Trejo. Udo Kier is here oh, for us. Yeah, Udo. yeah. Clint Howard. Yeah, and the scenery. Clint Howard. Yeah, Bill Mo. Like it's and they're they're just there. It's kind of just amazing to see them in a movie like this. And it's like you probably got paid more for those two lines in this movie than you did for anything yeah. else in your entire career, which is kind of incredible. To the point about Maine, I do kind of like the joke. I like the idea that Loomis, who is this very presented as this very seventies quack doctor, <laughs> that he he may have been like, okay, so I talked to the authorities. You get one hour outside a week and seven hours in the gym. And it's just like, that's that's the therapy that we're working on here. <laughs> and then Luma's going, maybe in hindsight, that wasn't the best therapeutic idea I could have had. Um, yeah. Uh, yes, you, you still get to do the driving. <laughs> yeah, the, <laughs> but, but you're not going anywhere, so I don't, so I don't see what's the problem. problem. <laughs> yeah. uh, to be fair, Zombie, Zombie makes a point of not showing him in the car because that did bug him. When he was asked how he got from Smith's Grove to Haddonfield, he was like, I don't know. He just strapped himself to the bottom of a truck like uh, Robert De- or like Robert De Niro in Cape Fear. Yeah, That's fair how he got there. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, the, the truck stop sequence is great. And I feel like they're kind of paying homage to it in Halloween 2018 because they have a toilet kill. That's obviously much better. Um, don't get me wrong. Although Ken Fury is great. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I just assumed he walked. Because it wouldn't take him that long. He's huge. He takes <laughs> he giant, big steps. giant steps. He does a lot of yeah. walking. He would have definitely have a long stride. He does a lot yeah, of walking just... in Halloween too, as well. So yeah, Halloween too is is a movie about walking. But we'll get we'll get to that. Yeah, a few preposterous bounds, and he's <laughs> there. And, he's there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and Andrew, would this be on your own personal two fifty? No, it's horrible. <laughs> 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 oh. it's so scuzzy and gross i i, I was just like Ugh. <laughs> like true true and, and that is the point so like yeah. that, that's effective filmmaking that was his vision that's what he wanted to do <laughs> i hated it um it's it's very of its time though this was yeah you know what i mean not, this was the vibe in horror at the time was just go nastier 
go dark. Yeah. Peaks goes. Yeah. Peaks goes. It was just before everything became haunted house films again, actually. Oh, you know. Yes. Well, paranormal activity. Like it was paranormal uh, activity turned it back into oh, the fan footage revolution. Um, but that was like 2009. So that's the same year as the sequel to this. Like this is just mm-hmm. like if they had skipped this and gone like in 2011 and made a sequel, it would have been a found footage. Yes. Halloween definitely. movie probably the way things definitely. Worked. But yeah, sorry. I think our past future guest Richard Newby makes the point that like it's and I think Bernice made it earlier on. It's a very 9-11 thing. Where it's like bodies are mangled and stretched and bent and broken and twisted. And that's just the way the world is. And we're going to show you it in as much detail as we can. Because that's the footage that you are seeing online when you're watching these videos that are coming, you know, from overseas, from the war on terror. Hell, even the bodies at Ground Zero, the footage that you're seeing from Ground Zero. Uh, And I think he makes the point that, Newbie makes the point, it's a very good point, um, that... The desire to explain Michael Myers' evil here could be seen in the context of, like, the post-9-11, wait, why did they do that? Why did that happen to us? That was a big part of American culture, where one of the reactions to 9-11 was America going, wait, the rest of the world doesn't love us? There are parts of the world that don't think we're great? There are parts of the world that would want to do this to us? We don't understand this. Mm -hmm. This is not what we were told the end of history was going to be like. This is not what the end of the Cold War was supposed to be. We won, right? Because they hate freedom and suburbs. (laughs) Yeah, that's it exactly. And so, like, trying to understand that or trying to understand the psychology of evil, Newbie makes the argument, I think it's a very good one, that, like, that's kind of how you end up with, but wait, what is, why does Michael Myers hate suburbs? (laughs) What is the deal there? Um, And for myself, no, no, this is not on my top 250 favorite movies ever. Um, it would be in the top half of the, the Halloween franchise for me. I think it's commendable um, in several ways. I think it is the best of this wave of remakes. I think it is yes. a welcome, refreshing. It is the best Halloween movie for me. And this is going to be controversial. I apologize, Joey. <laughs> since Halloween 3. This is the best Halloween movie since Halloween 3 for me. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's not 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 great. Um, and it's it's scuzzy and it's unpleasant. I like the scuzziness more than Andrew does, I think. In that, like, I like that a slasher movie or a horror movie makes me squirm. Yeah. I think that's, like... Makes you uncomfortable. That's it. That's part of the appeal of it, is that, like... As as we mentioned when we talked about the first one, there's that thing with slasher movies where it's like, am I meant to be excited by this? Is this meant to make me react, like, positively? Am I meant to be leaning forward as I'm watching this horrible stuff happen? And Bernice kind of said, you know, there is that academic thing of asking, like, well, what about the main audience? But like as a member of that audience, when I watch those movies, I do occasionally feel like, wait, does the filmmaker think I should be leading forward? Does the filmmaker think that I should be excited by this? Does the filmmaker think that I should want to see more of this? And I think what I like about the zombie movies is that it it really does feel like I'm meant to feel disgust. It really does feel like I'm meant to like squirm in my seat. It really does feel like I'm meant to resent the fact that I am watching these people die on screen. I'm not meant to enjoy Mm. the experience with my popcorn munching away. And maybe, maybe I'm just a horrible moralistic person who's like, I like my entertainment to validate my worldview, but I like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a weird, it's a weird, it's a weird thing. Like I, I like being amused by movies. I like being uh, deeply saddened. But I, I, uh, I suppose there's a particular type of disgust and it's not like the kind of body horror stuff, which I enjoy, but it's, it's, it's just the nihilism. Yeah, 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 exactly. That's, that just doesn't do anything for me. I don't, it's like, oh, 
when's the next one? <laughs> <laughs> when, can, when can I shower? Yeah. Um, so I was going to say one thing I think that I think all the films so far failed to do, and it would actually be really interesting, and maybe this would have been the film that they maybe could have done it in, was, uh, you know, Justice for Judith Myers. Like, Zombie, he does, in fairness, I, he does give... Um, Myers's mother, obviously, in, in the original film, I love the fact she only appears briefly on screen and she's seen her, her small child holding a knife, clearly having done no good. And she then immediately, their little tableau, she puts her hands in her pockets, she just stands there with her hands in her pockets. <laughs> you know, the camera yeah. hands out the lawn with her hands in her pockets. And that's his mother uh, from the original film. So, you know. She's um, just like, oh. <laughs> oh, Michael, oh, Michael, what have you done this time? shenanigans yeah God. This, t- this time around his mother is a very fleshed out character I think in a lot of ways a very sympathetic character you get a sense that she's genuinely yeah. trying to do her best for her son you know she goes to the school she's clearly trying trying in difficult circumstances to you know she knows something's not quite right but she's you know she's doing her best but the sister the sister is treated almost as ba- I mean you've got the horrific you know stereotype Will horrible, like, you know, white trash, uh, sexually abusive, leering stepfather. He's just like st- such a stock kind of, I think, Rob Zombie character in a way, or like a parody of a Rob Zombie character. He's, you know, there to be hated and then kind of killed. But the but the sister, Jude, she, she's still called Judith, isn't she? Yeah. yeah. He's, she's not fleshed out really whatsoever. She's, she's you know, she's uh, she's killed off, of course, in, in a similar way that, that Judith is in the original film. There's no opportunity whatsoever. Like it's a film all about him being obsessed with his sister, but his his other sister, who is kind of her death, is such a, a precipitating factor. It just annoys me, is what I'm seeing. I, why didn't Rums up? There should be a film about Judith Myers. That's my pitch for my <laughs> Halloween film. I, I will end it. Your Halloween prequel is just Judith. Yeah, Judith, yeah. played by Hannah Hall, who played the young Jenny in Forrest Gump. Okay, which is, there's yeah. an interesting fact. Jenny likes peas and carrots. Um, uh, yeah. I think she is fleshed out, though. I think she's she's shitty to him. You know what I mean? She won't take him trick-or-treating, so that's sad. And then I think she has that moment with the boyfriend where he says, your dad, and she's like, he's not my dad. And then she says, my dad's in heaven. I think, and then as Darren was saying, like, her death is so drawn out, that slow crawl down the hallway. Like, it's vicious. Yeah. Um. So, no, I do. and But, I mean, I still have empathy for her, obviously, because she's in this horrible situation where her stepdad's, like, leering at her and... You're wondering, is she even safe in that house? And obviously the mom is doing the best she can. And yeah, I don't know. I think she, I think she does kind of get her moment. Like she probably still doesn't really deserve to die. <laughs> but I, yeah. she kind of has to. She has like, to, like, yeah. The, this, this movie lets Michael Myers take it out on uh, uh, Judith's um, uh, boyfriend. Yeah, he doesn't or really do anything boy, to him. Yeah, boy, boy that um, his sister is sleeping with. Because oh. like how 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 he gets hit with yeah. the baseball bat, and that's the the obligatory Robocop reference, <laughs> like ma- massive head, 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 <laughs> head, trauma. head trauma. But but the the like in 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 the original, um, <laughs> boy kind of walks out the front door and he's like, "Hey, ah, damn it! I wish my legs weren't so short." <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Can like, I? Can- can I elaborate? That That's the yeah. thing where I'm like, I do think it's a conscious thing where you look at the original Halloween, right? And you look at the men in the original Halloween where Judith's boyfriend is upstairs for a grand total of 90 seconds. Yeah. I'm not going to impugn his performance, 
But he goes upstairs for, for good time, not a long time. Yeah, he's there for a good time. Not, 90 seconds, turns the light on, puts his shirt on and leaves, right? And then there's the moment with Bob later on when he's having sex uh, in the house. And that is a moment where it's like, it's about 30 seconds-ish. And then she's like, oh, Bob, you're the most amazing man who ever did anything. Imagine w- if in a movie there was like a sex scene that you're coming back to, like, um, you know, cutting <laughs> like, to other scenes. Like the thing. And it lasts like a full half hour. <laughs> um, like the thing in the original um, Halloween. They just keep cutting back so you know that it's like 90 minutes or however long it is. But my, my, point, my point before we got derailed is that I do... Maybe it's just Rob Zombie nastiness nihilism. But it does very much feel like this is like, no, no, no. The men are very much part of this as well. The men are awful. Yeah. They are terrible. Um, and, you know, the the women are not... And again, not to imply that they Lewis are being is judged. Worse too. What? Loomis is worse, too. Yes, he's he not, is. He's, Especially he's in the second ju- one. Okay. He's not just cracked. He's really vain. Yeah. Okay, okay, yeah, okay. Uh, let, let's, let's speed and around this and then get off, through. And he profits off the murders. He writes the book as well. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. Blood money. Blood money. Okay, okay, let, let's speed around this. So, no, 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 no. Uh, Bernice, would you recommend <laughs> listeners, Sorry. if they have not seen Rob Zombie's 2007 Halloween, currently streaming on Netflix, would you recommend that they pause the podcast and stream it to a local device? I would say that if you're someone who's um, really interested in the franchise, it's it you know it is at least a film that try, genuinely tries to do something different. I couldn't, in all good faith, say to them that I thought that it was a good film, um, <laughs> but I think I think uh, there are some interesting elements in it which I don't think are particularly successfully handled. So I mean, I'd rather recommend this to somebody than uh, you know Halloween four, five, six, seven. Uh, but they'd have to be really into the Halloween franchise. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, like, I'd recommend the Halloween film as a standalone to anybody who's interested in the genre. I certainly wouldn't do that with this. I think you would have to be someone who really was kind of a Halloween completist to probably get much out of it. So, or, or a big Rob Zombie fan. Um, or um, both. Yeah, that was the kind of fear with resetting Andrew, where Andrew doesn't have the context of the intervening seven <laughs> movies. He just went, my, his total experience at the moment is John Car- John Carpenter and Rob Zombie. And I'm like, <laughs> I feel like that was maybe the wrong way to watch this movie. But Joey, what about yourself? Would you recommend listeners pause the podcast and stream it to a local device? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, a few years ago, my, my dear, dear husband imported a copy of this for me because you could not get it over here. And it's the director's cut and it includes a four and a half hour documentary on the making of Halloween. That's really, really good. <laughs> it is. It's great. Bernice looks like it's it's the dream. This it's is what great. she aspires to. Yeah. And they have like the screen test. Go to my test Christmas for... list. <laughs> well, yeah. But like it includes like the screen test for Scout Taylor Compton and the alternate ending, um, which is like a little bit quieter than the ending they put in there. But yeah, look, I think it's important in the context of the Halloween franchise. I think it's important in the context of remakes and of early 2000s horror as well. Um, so I think if you're a horror fan, if you're a Rob Zombie fan, and as Bernice says, if you're just a Halloween completist, then yeah, absolutely. And Andrew, <laughs> would I would recommend I, would I, this? Would I send this into space? <laughs> the question earlier on with Bernice what you said yeah she wouldn't vent like, it what, would, at the airlock you're kind of rolling the dice on what response would aliens have to it <laughs> would it would it be like like if they're the kind of people who like to go somewhere uh, uh, murder them all 
would 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 they be like i don't like this place i i, I like to you know in 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 enslave or exterminate like you know kind of a nicer planet um yeah so i'm going to stay away from this one or do they are they the nucas from orbit <laughs> it's the only they, way to be sure if, if they've seen this movie <laughs> um, um so not sensing much warmth from you on this but but i would recommend it if somebody is following along watching all of the halloween movies with us as nice part of this, um uh series yeah or, or if you're just interested in uh, horror movies and the way they speak to and are spoken to by the kind of culture in which they're situated in then yeah um i would recommend this if you are watching this if you are interested in like 2000s horror if you are interested in the halloween franchise if you are interested in rob zombie i think it's worth a look what i will say absolutely watch the theatrical cut do not watch the director's cut the director's cut is a train wreck of a movie uh, for a variety of reasons. It includes a four-minute sexual assault season, a sequence that has no business being there yeah. that makes the movie even more unpleasant and in a way that even I, who I'm like, I like the unpleasantness of it, I like how uncomfortable it makes me feel, I'm like, no, that is too much. Um, unnecessary. But it's totally, it's totally out of place and it's not even something that, that's not even a hallmark of his movies. He doesn't do sexual assault. Yeah. So, which is what one of the reasons why I admire him, so I don't understand why that's, like I feel like that was a studio thing as well. You know what I mean? Does he not? Does he not? The Devil's Rejects though. Was there not quite an extended unpleasant scene in the motel, or am I? That's not a rape though. I mean, I know he's yeah. like with the gum, but like it's not. Sorry, not to be like it's not penetrative, but it, it yeah, is no, a sexual assault. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But it's yeah. not. This is this is like it's, yeah, it's like not as full on. This is graphic. And it's hooting is... and hollering and like it's and it, as as Darren says, it just has no place in the story whatsoever, and it's. I wouldn't consider it a hallmark of his movies, especially not violence against women specifically. Women are, I mean, especially with Baby Firefly, are often the ones doling out the violence. So it just, yeah, it was very strange. Can I ask out of curiosity, is the character to who, who is assaulted in the director's cut, is that what, a major character or a minor no, character? No, a minor. Okay. It's another... She does not appear at all. She does not appear at all it's in the, the theatrical. It's another patient at the sanitarium. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, it's the it's the orderly who's like very dismissive of Danny Trejo. Oh, yeah, which is weird as well. And for some reason, he takes her into Michael's room to assault her, which makes no sense whatsoever. And that is the reason that Michael escapes. That's the version that I saw. Actually, that's the version that's on tube. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. It's the director's cut. I didn't. I didn't realize. I didn't realize I was watching the director's cut. There you go. Okay. That maybe that's why you hate it so much. (laughs) But uh, yeah, the the say dislike. Hate's a strong word. It's oh, all right. <laughs> yeah, you hate a Serbian film. <laughs> I do hate a Serbian film. Um, Don't get me started as do on I, yeah. As do I. Oh my god, it's disgraceful. But I would, I would, I would recommend. Um, yeah, I would a recommend Serbian the actual film. What? <laughs> I'm not recommending a Serbian film. Jesus okay. Christ, Andrew. All right. With that in mind, we will segue neatly into the spoiler zone. I am sorry this has run so long. So, Joey, you've been with us all season. This seems like your time to shine. What is Rob Zombie's Halloween about for you? Oh, God. I For me, I think it's um, it's a classic case of a filmmaker and a studio kind of jostling for two completely different things. Um, like I said, it's it's 
emblematic of where horror was at the time, especially mainstream horror and remakes. Um, I think it's an example of a filmmaker who really, really, really loved a property, had an idea of what to do with it and maybe didn't get the support he needed or maybe, sorry, maybe just he didn't have the talent required. It definitely demonstrates how much of a genius Carpenter is because even when he uses the same music, he uses the same like tracking shots, it doesn't have the same effect. Um, but I do think it's, yeah, I think it's an interesting, I'm not even going to say an interesting failure because I don't think it's a complete failure. And I also think you're onto something with the deconstruction of um, the male versus female stuff too. Um, because it, he, he's always kind of been in conversation with that stuff with his movies, but it's, yeah, it's an interesting, an interesting example of early 2000s horror that is better than most of it, even though it doesn't quite succeed. <laughs> to I, damn it with you, faint praise. <laughs> but you, you mentioned like the sequences that it borrows directly from the Carpenter. Yes. Movie. And like, what's really interesting is if you want to track the tension that exists between like the studio and Zombie over this, is that Zombie gave interviews before the film came out saying like, one final change that might just be the most controversial of them all, the dropping of the famous Halloween theme composed by Carpenter. The plan was at some point to remake it to change it round, Zombie said, revealing it has since been shelved. The actual way it sounds now doesn't really work with what we're doing. No. We're reimagining the picture, Andy Gold added. Perhaps a reimagining of the sound is in order too. But then you watch the movie and it just keeps dropping the Carpenter theme into it. Mm. So it's very clear that like the Weinsteins at some point were like, no no we have no, to you yeah you have you have to do the homage you have to do the reference and like the carpenter tracking shots like i think this movie works because it doesn't try to replicate it works when it doesn't try to replicate Car uh, carpenter's aesthetic yes so like yes carpenter's symmetry is clean uh his shots are very carefully composed his world is empty like the thing about suburbia it, and it's because they couldn't pay for extras hmm. but it's this big empty world that is almost perfect whereas zombies world is messy and cluttered and ugly and populated by like details that feel lived in mm. and inhabited like the details of like the overflowing like extra daughters what um, <laughs> um, well, they, they 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 couldn't the yeah the like carpenters like where are we going to find a baby yeah we can't <laughs> afford a baby <laughs> um but yeah i mean I, I don't know. I, I do think like that's the big tension for me with this. But do you want to talk about Malcolm McDowell as Loomis? Yes. I think this is the most interesting part of the movie because this is, for me, the heart of what Zombie does. I adore him. I just... he I think he's fantastic in this role. He's even better in H2. He has that great line, I wrote it down, where someone's like, oh, the book was shit. And he goes, I read that book. It's a masterpiece. <laughs> like, he's just... <laughs> he's so... He's so arrogant. He's so smug. But then I also, I have some empathy for him too when he tells Michael, you know, I failed you. He obviously feels a lot of guilt, which he should. Also, you mentioned um, that Donald Pleasant said, why would I have a wife? I feel like there's a little reference to that because Malcolm McDowell is like, this lasted longer than my first marriage. So like, I wonder... <laughs> twice as long as my first twice marriage. Twice as long, yeah. So I wonder if like, because you know Rob Zombie knew that because he's a horror fanatic. And I wonder if that was like his little nod to it, but... I love his 70s styling at the start with that like yes. really bad wig. And the sunglasses. Oh, it's just... Like, again, the, the rocking up kind of 70s new age psychotherapy thing. Like, again, he does feel... He feels like the therapist who does the spanking therapy. He does. The reference. <laughs> like, yeah. But, I, but you, I also... I mean, I love Malcolm McDowell. I think he's great. But I think Rob Zombie was very clever 
to choose him to put him in this role. You know, not to just choose another English actor, obviously, but to give him the space to do something a bit hammy, a bit fun and a bit more layered as well, because I fully believe that he was trying to help and that he may it maybe just was kind of outside his his pay grade like he just kind of didn't know what to do and then when he comes back again he you know what I mean he does really fight hard to try and stop it and then he has all those scenes with Brad Dourif as well as the sheriff that are great and of course he has to be like he's Michael Myers sister which is so (laughs) stupid (laughs) but only Malcolm McDowell could deliver that line with sincerity you know Again, we've spent six movies with Loomis. Mm. Loomis kind of becomes the protagonist of the original Halloween saga. I love Pleasance Loomis, Loomis all the way through. Yes. Um, I can't but, remember if, was this the most Timothy Leary uh, he Yes, is? that he ever appears. Okay. Yes. Um, but like, I, I love that, you know, and those movies, Loomis is the only one who understands Michael. He, mm. The world is wrong. He's the only one who sees Michael as he truly is. And I love that, like, Here's like McDowell's take on this, which is Dr. Samuel Loomis is a psychiatrist whose lifelong work is Michael Myers. He obviously isn't a very good one, is he? (laughs) Of course, he doesn't cure him and he doesn't help him in any way. (laughs) Dr. Loomis is retired in this film. I want to make Loomis a man with tremendous ego. I've met some of these doctors through the years where there's more ego in it than there is interest in what's best for the patient. And if they can get a book out of it, which of course he has done, it's a bestseller and so much the better. It's like the opposite of Awakenings. (laughs) (laughs) like my god (laughs) but like this is the thing if you're remaking an iconic property like halloween you should be able to take risks like that which is the thing i love where it's like what if you flip the dynamic so fundamentally and like it's not that one is better or one is right it's that like they're two very different approaches that just change one fundamental idea about the core text and like because that that is that for me is the difference the core difference between zombie and carpenter where carpenter doesn't think there is i don't think carpenter even thinks there is a michael myers it's just the shape he's ununderstandable he's alien he's evil he's monstrous there's no way to understand him or fathom him or to get inside his head he's not even really human he's almost like a lovecraftian horror like the thing or like whatever it is in the vat in the basement in um the prince of darkness or whatever whereas I like that on the other hand, Rob Zombie's like, but but think about this, right? If a psychiatrist whose job it is is to treat a kid comes to you in the performance review and says, the kid's pure evil. There's just nothing inside <laughs> yeah. him. He's just an unstoppable machine, the living incarnation of chaos. The evil has escaped. The evil has escaped. He's probably not particularly good at his job. And he's probably not helping that boy. Michael, Michael exhibits inconvenient behavior. <laughs> it's not that he's a bad kid. <laughs> Just needs to be taught to socialize those yeah, behaviors. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he can have a long career in the military or law enforcement. Uh, yeah. He has the same color theory that I do. It's that kind of Newtonian thing of like black is not a color. I, and but I, I love that moment so much because there's this kid who's talking to him like Michael Myers doesn't talk that's the whole thing Mm. and watching the movie you're like I get why he doesn't talk because when he talks Loomis does things like tell him how stupid he is because he doesn't know that black isn't a color Mm -hmm. like it I I love that moment and there's the moment when like Loomis is leaving the uh, psychiatric institution and he's like you know Michael in many ways you're the closest thing that I have to a best friend 
it just goes to show how fucked up my life is. And I'm just like, that is that is amazing. I love that moment. Me too. So much. Me too. I hate it so much. I love that line, but with derision rather than delight. I think I think there's something to be said for um, a better film. (laughs) Um, Dealing with the idea of a man of science, a man of psychiatry at a time where psychiatry, the seventies, was undergoing monumental shifts um, in their understanding of of you know in previously considered intractable conditions, in in and suddenly coming to the realization that particularly with a young patient, that they are essentially soulless, that there's nothing there, that there's nothing science can do. I think there's, you get glimmers of that in the relationship between Michael and and Loomis in the first film. And I think this film in its own incoherent way is trying to develop that idea. But I I do think, I think those sequences where we have the sort of the, you know, the the, Michael in black and white against the wall and he's gradually getting more and more kind of um, hulking and I suppose it's meant to suggest that he will grow to be very, very... That is in the director's cut as well. Very, very tall and very, very wide. Um, These repeated Mm -hmm. sequences that they're kind of, they're losing him. But I mean, for me, it's kind of epitomized, you know, by the escape scene where or the scene where um, uh, the young Michael attacks a nurse with a fork. And it's not only a kind of a half-assed reenactment of a famous saint thing that's mentioned in the Sands of the Lambs and briefly glimpsed where Lecter attacks the nurse um, when he's getting his blood pressure taken. But the idea as well that, you know, it's the, he's the most dangerous child in Illinois and they've given him a fork. It's all a long way of saying this is a terrible institution and I hope they lose all the public funding. <laughs> And I just <laughs> well, it's one, but it's an. Ass- uh, don't don't tell that to Loomis. Ill 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 annoy him. I I like that, ah. but I I do love the, I I do love that Bernice is like I expected more from a psychiatric institution run by Udo Kier and Clint Howard. Yes, <laughs> um, I, <laughs> I absolutely did. I thought I thought Udo would run a tighter ship. <laughs> Udo Kier, Clint Howard, and, and Malcolm and Malcolm <laughs> Can you imagine being like you just show up in that institution? You're like this is no, no. Just send me to the electric chair. I'm getting chair. worse every day I spend here. <laughs> um, I, I and again, it's not subtle, but I do like the zombie bit where like he's when he's doing the book tour. I, and again, I love the smash cut of. The bit where he's like, so this is goodbye, Michael. And then he leaves and you smash cut to the the eyes of evil yeah. by like Sam Loomis book tour, where it's I've immediately tried to turn this kid into my meal ticket. Yep. But like the the And again, it's not subtle. Um I kind of like the brashness of it. But the bit where he has the projection of the eyes of Michael Myers behind him and he says, you know, look, look at this child. And then the camera cuts in close to Loomis's eyes. And Loomis says, these are the eyes of a psychopath. And I'm like, Rob Zombie, you genius. I see what you're doing, Rob Zombie. And I respect it. I kind of admire that sort of heavy handedness, I have to say. And the sequence where he buys the gun. Yes. I think I, I think he steals a police car as well. <laughs> yeah, he does, technically. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll need to must. He does. <laughs> he also leaves those kids unattended which is great go stand by that ambulance and don't move whatever you do no matter what shape you see coming at you out of the house don't move mm-hmm. just to single out something i do like about the movie that i think works really well obviously zombie isn't as good at evoking suburban horror as carpenter is we've we've acknowledged that countless times but there are repeated shots that i love in this movie where it's an static shot of the outside of a house and it's a door opening or closing. 
and then something horrible happens. Yeah. So there's the moment where um he where after you know obviously well first of all Laurie's parents are in the movie and they have that conversation where he's like so uh, wholesome uh, straw dad um <laughs> he's uh, smoking yeah inappropriately yeah uh but the bit where he's like so are we gonna get busy tonight and she's like no we're gonna plan the vacation but the bit where you just have this shot it's a wide shot where myers just walks into frame slashes him across the neck and pushes him into the house and closes the door Mm -hmm. that's a great scare which it's also just a great shot there's a moment earlier where annie is running through the house and she gets the door open and you cut to the exterior of the house and you see the door open Mm. and you see him grab her and pull her in and then the door closes and like that's those are really for me effective ways of communicating the idea of the horror that happens behind closed doors i mean we talked about the idea that zombie maybe should have done like texas chainsaw Mm. that maybe that would be something that would suit his sensibility better i kind of like the idea in this movie that like behind a nice suburban exterior there's always something rotten and filthy so, like, behind those closed doors, inside those houses that look perfectly normal from the outside, there is the Myers family, which is, um, I think Nathan Rabin described it as the worst night of dinner theatre you have ever seen, <laughs> with their family arguments at the start. Mm. But you also obviously have the violence that's happening, where these people are being pulled back into the houses by Myers and the doors being closed. But if you're outside, you don't know. You don't see anything. Mm. Ghost of Pensacola. It's yeah. so quiet too. There's that there's that great sense of quiet where it's just yeah, crickets, nothing. You wouldn't know anything was wrong. If you were walking past, you just keep walking. And I think something that's interesting about this movie as opposed to the other one, the other one obviously was shot in Pasadena, but everyone looks cold in this movie, which I appreciate. It actually feels like October in Illinois in this movie. You know, they're all kind of wrapped up when they're going from house to house. They're like, ooh, yeah. you know what I mean? Oh, you cold. Oh, hurry up. Which I appreciate that as well. That it. That, uh, that, that truck stop feels Baltic. Oh, God, yes. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And then I think I, I think this, setting the, fi- the finale in the Myers house, I think, was a smart move as well. And I think there's some good stuff with her like in the crawl space and everything. Yes. I think all of that stuff I think is really strong too. And you know, the mo- the moment where he kind of appeals to her and she's just so confused because he's showing her this photo and she's like, I don't know who that is. Like, I don't know what's going on. And I think you can really, again, I think she's great, but you can really feel her terror when she's trying to break through that door and she's just desperately trying to escape. And then when she falls into the pool, like it's just... Again, I think all of that stuff is really strong. I think it builds really, really well to that finale. And again, Darren giving Rob Zombie far, far, far too much credit on this podcast. But the demolition of the house, the literal destruction of the suburban home. Yes. Where he's not like he's not just stalking her through the house. He is tearing the house apart. As you said, it's yes. the crawl space, the bit of the house that you don't see. But he has the moment where he grabs the piece of wood and he's literally smashing it through the ceiling as if to demolish yeah. this institution, this suburban life that she has built. That's, you know, again... Not not subtle, not particularly nuanced, not particularly layered, but I, I quite liked it in terms of, again, imagery in terms of a, um, a, a film. But again, his size makes sense in those moments too. And also something to remember about Michael Myers just occurred to me. Michael Myers like pins people to walls. And when he's this huge hulking character, that kind of makes more sense too. Where you're like, yeah, he would just go up into the wall and be like, bye. But when he's demolishing the house, absolutely, you're like, this gigantic hulking beast is going to just tear this house we, to shreds. We didn't mention when, back when we did Halloween, how he pins him to like a piece of clapboard. Huh. 
<laughs> Load-bearing clapping. Like the physics. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. But again, um, it's supernatural. That's the thing where, yeah. like, the, as, as kind of Bernice pointed out, is he supernatural? Isn't he supernatural? But no, no, like, if... if, oh, if Andrew's a, like, no, no, no. Put a butcher knife through and then into, like, a beam <laughs> of, of wood, then maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe it's going, like, really deep into that beam. I don't know. Uh-huh. But... Is there anything you want to say about the movie, Bernice, before we wrap up? Anything that we haven't discussed or anything jumping out at you? No, I think I've... For Bernice. Um, I think I've kind of said everything I wanted to say. I should see if I didn't... Um, I went back... I wrote a review of this book back in... Two, or this film back in 2007, and I went back and read 2007 Bernice's opinions on this film. And 2007, Bernice was incredibly bitchy in print oh. about this film. And actually, probably... <laughs> oh, can I'll, we quote? Can we can we revive? Yeah. <laughs> I was a bit cheerier probably than I would be now, in fairness. But I think part of the reason why the film really hacked me off so much was because I just was working on this book and I spent an awful lot of time researching the original film and I felt a great sense of sort of, um, I guess, uh, investment in the original film. And I, I, I sincerely disliked the film when I first saw it uh, and then I watched the second film when it came out of which uh, probably unfairly to it, all I seem to remember is a dream sequence involving Sherry Moon and a unicorn or something uh, yep. <laughs> I just saw a thing that happened I didn't dream that did I um, nope. so with the benefit of hindsight and perhaps being a little bit less personally hacked off by this film I probably feel a tiny bit I wouldn't say kindly but a little bit more you know what at least he's trying something different, you know. At least I think there's a sincerity there. It is genuinely brutal, I think, in a quite an effective way. But um, I think it's a it's a it's a misfire, uh, a substantial misfire. But having said that, not as bad as many of the other films you guys have subjected yourselves to over the last few weeks. <laughs> Although Andrew has local has luckily been able to uh, save himself <laughs> through amnesia, so that Andrew has repressed traumatically. <laughs> I, I do love, by the way, there's this quote here again, Rob Zombie talking to Halloween News uh, when he's asked about the violence in the movie and he just lies. Um, there's no other way to like explain this quote. When he's asked, like, will this be more violent than the John Carpenter movie? And he's like, no, not really. There's not tons more blood. I'm not really a fan of 80s slasher bloody movies. They always bored me. I like character driven movies. This is really violent, really intense, but it's because you get swept up in the characters. A bloodbath. Them. Yeah, he's Completely trolling. trolling. Yeah, he, is. <laughs> he is. Come on, they're called Halloween news. He's obviously like losers. <laughs> um, no, MTV. That was MTV. Oh, I sorry. thought you said Halloween news. <laughs> no, that was MTV movie news. Sorry. Um, what about yourself, Joey? Anything you want to talk about? Anything we haven't discussed already? Yeah, like I just, I want to. Um, we were talking about the music before and I want to say I like the use of Love Hurts. I think he uses it better in Halloween too. And I wish the ugh, the Weinsteins ugh, had had more faith in him and let him kind of go more down that road rather than using the score again. But something I have to say about this movie that really bothered me, Empire a few issues ago did a rundown of the Halloween movies and there was a female critic included and she said that the movie was misogynist. And she said that Laurie Strode is reduced to being another of Rob Zombie's big titted bimbos. Now, aside from the fact that that statement is in itself misogynist, Laurie Strode, like myself, is a member of the Itty Bitty Titty Committee. So she does not have large breasts. There's like no cleavage on show from her in this movie. I know there's like other boobs, whatever. And that's, mm. you know, that's another <laughs> another argument. But I think that's another example of how people have this idea about what Rob Zombie's movies are. And I don't think that's what they are. I don't think he's somebody who, 
you know, like it, it, that's like piranha double D, three double D. Do you know what I mean? And again, I think he just gets lumped in with these other filmmakers like Eli Roth, who, you know, hung an actor from the ceiling and all she was hanging by was her feet and she had nothing else. And if she fell, she just would have broken her neck. Like Rob Zombie's not that person. And I just thought that was such a wild take and it really stuck in my head as just being so unfair because I think Scout Taylor Compton's performance is very good given she isn't kind of given that much to work with. She's given much more in Halloween too. But yeah, I think the reason, not you, Bernice, <laughs> but the reason a lot of people have a problem with this movie is because they have an idea of Rob Zombie that isn't necessarily accurate. Mm. You know? Because, I mean, she was 19 years old in this movie and she looks 19, you know? Now, Daniel Harris, <laughs> who was like 30 at the time. 30, yes. Um, and, you know, tells a story about how, um, I think it was Malika Kad at this stage, not Mustafa because he was dead, uh, didn't want to cast her because he didn't think she was hot enough. And she had to, like, her and Rob Zombie had to fight really hard to get her in the movie. Rob Zombie was like, she's a legacy character. She's, you know, Jamie Lloyd. Because obviously so. she played Jamie from, yeah. Yeah, from, two, from four and five. So, yeah, I think, again, I think this is a more interesting movie than people keep it, give it credit for. And I think if this was Eli Roth's Halloween, oh, I don't God. think we'd be having... Yeah, oh, don't get me wrong, it'd be disgraceful. Because yeah. <laughs> he's a hack. But I don't think it would have got the same level of derision. Because I think people are more, are for whatever reason, kinder to Eli Roth, who in my mind actually does have some misogynist tendencies in his movies, than they are to Rob Zombie. Is it because he's part of the Tarantino movement? The Tarantino-Rodriguez kind of like um, El Paso, kind of Texas, 90s indie you're, pr- you're probably right. And I mean, obviously that's like a whole other story. But yeah, I just, I don't care if Rob Zombie isn't for you. That's absolutely fine. But to suggest that, you know, he has these kind of sexist tendencies in his movies, I find very strange. And I just, Mm. that description really stuck with me as being wildly inaccurate when it came to this particular movie. Do you think think part of the reason that um, the film is character or was characterized by some uh, commentators in this way is because of the company it was in with that range of often quite reductive and not particularly interesting. Yes. uh, Other films that were remakes that were, you know, there was less going on, I suppose. Whatever you think about this film, there's a lot going on in it. But yeah, the other films and were... They were... And they were quite leering. Like, even though I know you mentioned Jessica Biel, like, that's, you know, that's quite a leering, a leery well, even like... um, representation of that character. Even though she doesn't, you know, get naked or anything, but... Yeah, yeah. Even like, again, The House of Wax with, um, I remember like the way that shot Leisha Cuthbert, for example. I remember that being yes. kind of very similar as well. I mean, there... So... There, no, there just isn't, from from my perspective anyway, there isn't any of that in this movie. There isn't any of that in any of his movies. If there's one thing you can say for him, it's he's not leering at the women. You know what I mean? And again, the stepfather, when he's being disgusting about the daughter, that's presented as disgusting. It's not, as Darren said it, you're not supposed to be like, well, hey, you know what I mean? Finally, a character who represents my viewpoint on these movies. Um, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> like audi- audience surrogate. Yeah, he's finally relatable. It's um, like he, he's... He he's not even uh, those children's father, but he's there <laughs> <laughs> because he chooses to be. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. He's. Th- I take care of my yeah, kids. He's, he's turning up. <laughs> he's putting in the work. Yeah. I mean, I, I I do think maybe there is something about this being more explicitly sexual. I think than a lot of the horror movies. And again, I think that's quite conscious, and I think that's quite deliberate. I think like yeah, it's- and I I agree with you. I think you're onto something there. It never. 
it hadn't really occurred to me before, but I think it is deliberate, especially taken in the context of Rob Zombie's other movies. I think, and again, because the rape is so out of place, you're going like, why is this in here? Mm. And that's why it feels so out of place. Because that's not it's, the vibe. It's very... You know, the vibe isn't like, ha ha. It's very like, the. I can't remember if it came before or after, but it, it's very like the, there's a very similar scene in um, Kill Bill Part 1. Um, yeah. Where the institution yes. where the bride is kept. Which would have been around yeah. the same time. And it's horrible. Yeah, it's horrible. And it adds absolutely nothing. It is, yeah. It's 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 particularly kind of scummy. Yeah. And and there is, as I think kind of Bernice alluded to, like the weird Robert Zemeckis, Kevin Smith, wife guy kind of thing, which is like, look, I, I'm really glad that Sherry Moon Zombie and Rob like working together. I, don't, I, th- I don't think she's bad at all. I, no, I, 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 think I, 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 I am. I think she's good. I am team Joey and Andrew on this. I think she's really good here. Um, but I do think that yeah. there is an element of like, if you watch like Robert Zemeckis's movies, there's always like, hey, my wife's pretty hot, don't you think? And I'm like, I don't know what to make with that. I don't know what to do with that, Rob. And one thing I will say for well, Rob Zombie... Mike Flanagan does the same thing with Katie, Se- Katie Siegel as well. Although, in fairness, they're all very... She's a very good actress in her own right. He's been in multiple things before that, you know? Yeah. But I mean, and Eli Roth, he put his former wife in all his movies as well, including Knock Knock, which is like, woo. Oh. Um, that's a whole other, yeah, whole other story. One thing I'll say for or Rob Keanu. as well is that... Oh, God, bless him. <laughs> But again, it didn't, at least it didn't dent his shine. I, um, but I will say Rob Zombie, you know, with the nudity thing, like he never puts Sherry in a position where she's naked and wandering around. You know what I mean? I, I, I still do want us to not just talk about movies, but make movies and make that movie knock, 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 where it's in knock. It's exactly I, the I, same I, movie. Yeah. It's just said in knock. Just no, in it's, knock. A, it, it, it's something that happened to me where a car broke down and then you just like, you know, people like slowly kind of walking towards the car with like rosary beads and, and yeah. And there, there, yeah, there's like a single priest in the town who, who's like, don't worry. Um, yeah. That sounds terrifying. <laughs> It, it, what is this? It, it, Don't it, knock it till you've it, tried it. It was terrifying. <laughs> uh, um, I, I found an interesting detail um, in the newscast is that it was the most expensive trial um, <laughs> ever. Um, oh. the, 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 the trial of Michael Myers. Because there was like insufficient evidence, I suppose. House full of bodies. Like, what made it so... Who knows what happened? <laughs> what Samuel made, Loomis is like, no, 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 no. This is all on the court's budget. Um, what made it... So, yeah, exactly. What made it so expensive was that Michael Myers um, hired like... O.J. Simpson's dream team. Johnny Cochran, <laughs> Alan like Gershowitz. Ro- <laughs> Robert Kardashian, Robert Shapiro, yeah. If the knife slips, you can still equip. Um, <laughs> but, okay, uh, it, anything else you want to say, Andrew? No, like, like, I feel like the whole thing was caused by him not getting, like, good uh, Halloween candy. <laughs> that, dude, he gets, like, it's true can- it's true he only has candy, candy corn, corn sucks. Yeah. It's so it's bad gross. it's so it's disgusting <laughs> and he's just like and it looks stale it's just hydrogenated corn fat. but it looks stale as well he's like ooh, trying to chew through it so sad yeah. i think his issues are caused in retro and you know that the way that he styled in particular I kept thinking, and this is a very 23 perspective, 2023 perspective, I kept thinking the child looked like an unacknowledged Donald Trump love child. And maybe that's what was in the issues were. I swear to God, once you pick up on it, he looks like 
he could be like a forgotten and poorly treated member of the Trump. Maybe he's better off, you know, in, in Illinois. But, mm-hmm. but uh, that stuck in my head from the outset. Dad's not here. But he's in Trump Tower. Um, it's like the ne- the next indictment is like this. <laughs> yeah, this, Michael Myers. <laughs> this kind of like uh, quasi Baron <laughs> Trump. <laughs> so, oh God. Um, be like Lord. Jerry Moon Zombie is Melania. <laughs> she could do it. Uh, just in terms of just other stuff very quickly to talk about. It's I don't just... think he marries strippers. <laughs> maybe, maybe like... He just extorts them. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Okay. <laughs> like, okay. hush money. Okay. Oh, we don't want to get sued by Donald Trump. We should shut up. <laughs> allegedly, allegedly. Uh, I was going to say as well, that final shot I think is great. And H2 picks up like literally in that moment, which I think is cool too. Just her screaming. It's, it's a Texas Chainsaw scene, which like that's the thing. Like when you, when yeah. people say he should make a Texas Chainsaw movie, and I'm like, no, I feel like I like the fact that this is in the suburbs. That closing moment is it's not the closing moment of Halloween. It's the it closing Texas moment Chainsaw. of Texas Chainsaw, where she's just screaming. Yeah. It is a shame, isn't it? He would have done such a better job than that um, travesty that was released <laughs> and posted upon us. Lot. Well, we didn't have to watch it, but any horror fan would have watched that. You know. <laughs> well, that was supposed to be the dig. But I, w- I would watch. I would watch Rob Zombie doing Texas Chainsaw. I mean, I would definitely. Because he's been trying to make it for 30 years. <laughs> Just give it to the man. Himself and Ty West, yeah. He kind of already <laughs> did, I suppose, with... with uh, I suppose Devil's Rejects owes a lot to Texas Chainsaw, definitely. Yeah. That's kind of his his take, I guess. All right. And then just finally to situate this in the culture of 2007, because again, it's, it's just worth doing. Worth noting that this movie was beset by leaks and by fan protests and by fan outrage. The early drafts of the scripts leaked to Ain't It Cool News. Boo. You're going to say Ain't oh. It Cool News. Yeah, no. Yeah. I, 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 <laughs> whenever, whenever I say, let's just situate this movie in the culture of the 2000s, the answer is always a sex offender. Um, yes, it is. Yep. It is Ain't It Cool News. Not to segue from Donald Trump, but to... Ha! Allegedly. Allegedly. Um, (laughs) But yes, the script leaked to Ain't It Cool News where details were published and then you got this big fan outrage complaint. The work print, uh, the work print in its entirety leaked on the internet. In fact, you can still watch it and I did watch it for this. Uh, It's not good. Um, It's it's available freely online, uh, Joey. You can find it with a quick Google. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I will. (laughs) Um, I'm typing it in right now. Bernice is like, you know what would make this Rob Zombie movie better? If there were 50% more of it and everything he shot was in it. Um, No editing. That was what would make this movie better. Less editing. Um, But like, I think it is worth noting just to kind of put the the sense of like how online fan culture was changing and how this existed kind of in the maelstrom of it, where all of a sudden fans who were outraged by this had power. And zombies talked about like going to test screenings and having to change the ending based on test screenings. And if you watch the original work print, that the ending of it is, is radically different. Um, and like having to tweak and tailor this to compensate for the fact that online fans wanted the music or they wanted the the lines to be repeated. Lame. Like it is interesting that this arrives at a point where online fandom of all sorts, including horror, suddenly has this incredible influence on how movies are made, what they are allowed to do, and then their kind of legacy and reception. Where like, I wonder if this had been released in the mid 80s, if this had been released in place of, say, Halloween 3, 
would this be more speedily rehabilitated in the way that, say, Season of the Witch has been rehabilitated? I don't know. Mm. Uh, one, one more thing I want to say before we wrap up. I think, like, we mentioned it when we talked about the first Halloween. I hope we've been seeding it throughout the rest of the franchise as well. <laughs> but the idea of, like, how these movies are tied to American identity and American pop culture and American like politics in, in interesting ways that kind of are seeded throughout. Yeah. We talked about, like, I think when we talked about the first Halloween, the idea of the, the shadow of JFK, the idea that Judith Myers died three weeks before Kennedy was shot in Dallas and the way in which you can read the franchise as kind of America dealing with this sense of tragedy, where obviously, you know, in the first movie, Michael Myers is this random act that's uncontrollable, unpredictable, could have happened to anybody, did this terrible thing. And we talk about as you go on, like, you know, four, you know, as is very Reagan era, the mythology becomes increasingly kind of like dense and conspiratorial. I think like six, you have that whole cult of thorn stuff where everything is kind of tied together by red twine, reflecting the, the paranoia of the Clinton era. And I just I just want to note, it's a very nice touch, but I like that the stairway in the Myers house in this movie does have like a portrait of JFK hanging on it as well, which mm. kind of suggests that maybe I wasn't completely off base when I suggested that there is a connection between Michael Myers' act of senseless violence and the symbolic loss of innocence in America with the assassination of JFK. And I think we already mentioned like the 9-11 of it all, where yeah. like if Halloween, you know, 1978 was about the idea of this random act of violence, kind of like the Kennedy assassination, then this is very much like the 9-11 response, which is, no, 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 there has to be a reason. We have to be able to explain this horrible thing that happened, why it happened and why it happened to us in particular. I, I do I do honestly think there is something kind of interesting if you chart America's self-image through the Halloween movies, but we don't have time to go into that. <laughs> All right, is there anything else left to talk about? Is there anything jumping out of people that we haven't discussed already? Anything anybody wants to talk about? Bernice is like, please let me go. Free me. <laughs> I can't. Free me. I, I can't do anymore. <laughs> All right. Um, so, Bernice, thank you for... Suffered enough. Thank you for joining <laughs> us. Um, by the way, you, you will also be thrilled to know this did not screen for pr- critics. Um, what, what are the Boom. odds? But... What we normally do at the end of the podcast is recommend things. So to give Bernice, to give Joey a chance to think about it, I'm going to ask Andrew to go first. I, I feel like I, I often recommend the same things kind of around Halloween. Um, but there there are a lot of Halloween episodes <laughs> this <laughs> we year. We have been running <laughs> forever. Yeah, yes. exactly. So um, I'll recommend Society again. Ooh, I, I, nice. I, the, I the British horror film. It's British, isn't it? it's in california so it's, okay sorry. so it's american right yeah, yeah, american yeah what yeah. am i thinking of anyway sorry yeah oh <laughs> yeah i know what you're thinking of it's the you're thinking of the recent um uh movie what's it called polite society polite yeah, society sorry. is what you're thinking of. oh yeah. yeah um society is um great in week one or in ep- <laughs> in the Hallow- in the original Halloween episode, we spoke about they live, and society is another kind of like uh, it's a, f- a very good kind of Reagan, Re- sorry, uh, Ronald Reagan era kind of um, when like Hollywood was kind of critical of um, the culture <laughs> as opposed to just embracing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, so the, the, yeah, it's 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 wonderful. Um, and it's it's um, it's it's disgusting in a way that I really enjoy, <laughs> as opposed to this one. And Bernice, what would you recommend? What are you enjoying at the moment? Uh, I would recommend if people haven't had a chance to see it, it's widely available on streaming. Uh, Mark Milo 
my lot or my load uh, he worked a lot in succession film the menu it's absolutely tremendous mm. i've watched it a couple of times now um uh, it's very very funny it's actually a really good horror film and the less you know going into it the better and it's got a tremendous cast it's kind of a it's kind of a film that's mostly shot in one room and about a restaurant and certain things that happen yeah. there and Rafe finds this absolutely brilliant in it so uh, and it's it's really fun uh but also upsetting uh, so, and i would also <laughs> recommend- say it's an anya taylor joy is what you would say. She's very, she's very good in that. And uh, Nicholas Holt, uh, you mentioned the great when we talked about um, Halloween one, um, and uh, Halloween. Sorry, not Halloween one. Uh, he's also <laughs> in it, and he's plays. A, he's really good at playing ourselves. He's brilliant. Uh, <laughs> I would also recommend. Um, I'm rewatching um, because I'm excited about the uh, release of the new Exorcist film. I have high hopes. I'm sure they will be dashed. Uh, I can't wait to see Alan Burstyn on the screen again as that character. Um, but I'm rewatching The Exorcist TV show, Ooh. which, if anyone has not a chance to see it, is on Amazon Prime and is extremely good, surprisingly good. And while we're talking about the relationship between sort of remakes, prequels and sequels to, to sort of legacy um, properties, it's actually surprisingly decent. And uh, it's got a great performance from Gina Davis. And uh, it's Rook got well, another champ from Succession. Alan Rock. What do you call him? Alan Rock. Bueller? Alan, Alan Rock. Rock is in it as well. So um, if you were holding off and watching it, uh, it's actually surprisingly good. So the Actress TV show, I would also recommend. I gathered the second season's great too. I haven't had a chance to see it. So that's my recommendations. All right. And Joey, what would you recommend? What are you enjoying at the moment? Uh, I'm going to recommend a podcast. It's called Talk Scary to Me. And it's Scout Taylor Compton and Danielle Harris, uh, who are both in Rob Zombie's Halloween. And they're just talking about horror movies and about sex. They're talking about the industry. They've got like great guests like uh, Skeet Ulrich was on there. They talk about like their ongoing relationship with Rob Zombie, with Tyler Maine. They share stories from the set and stuff. So if you like either of them or if you like horror movies or especially if you like Rob Zombie's Halloween, <laughs> it's it's a great listen. It's It's really, really fun. And they're just... I don't know, they have an infectious energy and they kind of became best friends, not on the movie, but after the movie. And it's just, yeah, exploring that relationship, I think, is really fun if you're a horror nerd like me. And we didn't mention him at all in this episode, which is very strange. But Brad Dorif is in this movie um, playing yeah, the Brad... mentioned Brad Dorif. <laughs> Brad Sheriff. Very good. Brad Sheriff. <laughs> I said you, the sheriff. He had loads of great scenes with Loomis. <laughs> Fair point. Um, but yes, he is in Chucky. The third season of Chucky is on streaming now. Uh, the, I have not seen it yet because we may be recording this ahead of time. Spoiler alert. <laughs> but uh, the first two are great, so I will hardly recommend those. Uh, check those out. All right, then. And the, the movies of Ty West as well. I really like Pearl and I really liked X. Um, I'm really looking yeah, forward to Maxine. Great. It's coming out soon. Yeah. yeah. To complete the trilogy. Oh, Sacrament is great too. Is that, that the... Sacrament is great. I love yes. Sacrament. Abs- yeah. It's great. Really underrated actually as like a cult. Your a woman, movie about cults. Amy Smits, is it? Who's now a really Simon, interesting, yeah. Simon, a really interesting director. She's got a fantastic performance in that. She's it's worth she's worth the price of admission. If you're paying admission, yeah. I don't know where you're going to watch it. <laughs> yeah, she is great. <laughs> our, our, our if you're the second child in, in a big um, uh, coat. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, again, because West is a director I oddly associate with zombie for some reason. I think it's the seventies aesthetic of it all. Yeah. Um, all right then. So, if listeners are looking for a bit, a bit more Bernice Murphy in their lives, where can they find you? Watch out! Watch up to Bernice. Yeah, I'm on Twitter, uh, as I will refuse to use the new name, uh, at Murph Gothic. Um, so I'm a horror academic, uh, and I've also written 
quite a few books, but my most recent one is called The California Gothic in Fiction and Film. Um, and you read to John Carpenter. I have a, a, a chapter about Halloween uh, and also a, a chapter on Jordan Peele's Us, which I think is a masterpiece. So, uh, yeah, check it out if you're so inclined. And the back, the backlash to Us was Us, excuse me, was so weird. I don't understand no, that at all. I thought it was. I think it's stunning, it's, and it's a really, it's terrific. It's a really interesting film. It's just, it's tremendous. It is. Yeah, it is. I think he's a genius. Oh. Bernice, you mentioned that you had to watch Rob Zombie movies for research for a project. Let's monetize that. <laughs> what project was it and how can listeners support, show their sympathy oh, and support? Um, I did a book that was published in 2013 called The Rural Gothic in, ah. Amer- uh, and, uh, uh, in American popular culture. Um, and it was all about backwards horror films and its relationship with uh, some earlier works of classic American literature. And I did a whole chapter, which took me six months of my life involved a lot of charts on the wall about taxonomy <laughs> of the backwoods horror film and uh, as part of that I watched about 30 backwoods horror films and I watched uh, a lot of Rob Zombie's back catalogue but particularly uh, The Devil's Rejects uh, is uh, actually takes a lot of classic backwoods horror boxes as one would expect from someone who is very invested of course in classic 70s horror cinema like, uh, like Rob Zombie so you will find my critique of The Devil's uh, Rejects in that book rural gothic from your local academic library or illegal Mm -hmm. download site (laughs) (laughs) wherever you find that work print of rob zombie's halloween there it will be yes Um, yeah you can you know get the books at once have a great weekend you know yeah Yeah. (laughs) and the four and a half hour documentary Yes, behind the scenes, Bernice, behind the scenes. <laughs> when I, when I, when I don't I... need to know anything about behind the scenes. Don't you want to see him going like this? <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. So at that time, I was briefly doing that M. Phil, and my professor was like, well, my, my book, um, you can find it um, in all the usual places. But there's illicit places you can find it as well. And then he showed me like this <laughs> Russian website. Oh like, my god! Look, it's the whole thing. <laughs> you certainly can, won't download malware you, to your computer. You, you can you can get it there. Earlier, yeah. Andrew, you were telling me that your Windows computer started running slow all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, all right. Thank you so much, Bernice. Thank you so Joe, much. Where can we find you? What? Yeah, watch it up. Uh, you can find me on Twitter until the place burns down at Joey LDG. Uh, and I've also written defences of both of Rob Zombie's Halloween movies. They're both on wickedhorror.com if you want to have a look at those and disagree with me in the comments, as many people have. <laughs> I will now think of you as noted Rob Zombie apologist, Joey. That yeah, would be your I guess I am. <laughs> I guess I am. Who wasn't the title? Her, her twiddle handle is literally Zoe Living Dead Girl. That's right, Joey. The... It's also it's yeah. also my banner. My banner is like the Living Dead Girl thing. I... I mean, I just like that song, but uh, it's funny because one of my first author bios is me wearing a t-shirt with Rob Zombie's Halloween poster on it. <laughs> so I thought I was cool. I was not cool. I get it now. It's all come full circle, as in the Halloween franchise. It has. Yeah. And we know he's listening. Thank you, Rob. <laughs> Do we after Sorry, this Rob. far into the episode? <laughs> um, if you are there, thank you, Rob. We really thank appreciate you, it. Please feel free to rate, review, he's and subscribe. On record saying he doesn't give a fuck. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's true. That is true. Oh, well, 
Rob, if you are listening and you want more discussion of your films, uh, next Saturday, uh, Joey will be rejoining us to talk about Rob Zombie's Halloween 2, the hottest ticket on our Halloween slate. And joining us for this discussion, we will not have one guest, we will have two guests. The fantastic Jason Coyle, who put his marker down on that episode five years before we declared that we were going to do it, so I really couldn't turn him down. And the fantastic Grace Duffy will be joining us for that discussion. But thank you so much, Bernice. Thank you, Joey. Thanks, guys. Yes, thank, thank you, Bernice. Sorry. sorry. <laughs> Don't make me watch the monsters for next year, I, for the love of Christ. <laughs> oh, we never even mentioned that. Bye. See you guys.